I could not believe what I was seeing. I could have filled the back of his head with 556, which is an absolute joke. Well, it's not an ape, because if the Sasquatch was an ape, we would already have one. What are these elusive hominids that stalk the wilderness? Your host, two-time witness and field researcher for more than 40 years, William Jevning. Welcome to the mystery. Welcome to Creek Devil. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another edition of Creek Devil. Tom, you want to take this away? Absolutely. Folks, this is going to be a real interesting episode. We've got John from uh, the southeast, and he's had two very interesting encounters. One of them, uh, John, you and I spoke last night, and you had one that was actually fortuitously interrupted by your friend who was uh, firing a rifle. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to hand this off to you and just start from the beginning, fill us in with the details, and then work your way into the latest encounter, and we'll go from there. All right, sounds good. I appreciate you guys having me here. I feel like I've had to kind of seek out a bit of a support group for this. Uh, seems to be more acceptable to talk about UFOs nowadays than it is Bigfoot, which is strange to me. Um, I grew up, a uh, bit of background I'll preface with this, I grew up uh, in uh, eastern Tennessee, uh, Smoky Mountains, and then southwest Georgia in that region. I've been in the woods my whole life fishing, hunting, camping, just kind of a part of my childhood and carried it into my adulthood. I say all that to say I'm very comfortable in that environment. And uh, it, it just it's just not a place that I find unnerving. So my encounters that I'm going to tell you about has given me a different perspective. Back in uh, 2013, a friend of mine, uh, he had a family friend that owned a thousand plus acre tract of property up in middle Georgia. And he asked me if I wanted to go deer hunting with him up there. Of course, I'm always game for that. And uh, it was January 2013. I think it was the first weekend in January. And uh, I had just got into bushcrafting a couple of months before that. And uh studying up on George Washington Sears and Hugh Glass and some of the, the frontiersmen from the 17 and 1800s. So I, I wanted to take this as an opportunity to uh, kind of hone some of my skills that I'd been learning, shelter building, fire making, and, and the like. So uh, we rolled into town. Uh, I say town. We got to the, to the property uh, about Friday afternoon. And uh, I don't know exactly. I didn't drive. I'm not familiar with this particular area, Georgia. I know once you leave the cotton fields, you are in the woods. And it's, uh, this area is, it's north, northeast or north, northwest of uh, Macon and just south of Thomaston off of US 19. And that whole area, I actually looked at the map, Tom, after we talked last night to kind of get a feel for it. That, that whole area is pretty much all deer woods. Uh, that's hunting leases and 
private land and uh, I think there's a, there's a wildlife management area there so it's very remote I know the four mile dirt road that took us back to where his cabin that he was going to stay at was uh, there was no driveways no mailbox or anything so very remote and uh, I had I told him going up there that I was going to kind of scout out for my own campsite because I wanted to build my shelter and uh, do my fire. I didn't want to stay in a cabin. And we got there. He goes off on an afternoon hunt, and I start scouting out for a place to set up camp. And uh, I, I, I head east from the cabin and to visualize the cabin sets at a crossroads. There's a dirt road. There's two dirt roads that run through the property. And I, I'm not sure if they're county maintained. I just know they're really, they're Georgia clay dirt roads. And I, I headed down the dirt road that, that uh, the cabin was facing. And then I headed off into the woods and I found a clearing, a natural clearing uh, that was kind of oblong. If I had to put a size on it, it was about 20 foot by 10 foot clearing there and uh, nice flat ground. I decided this would be a good place to set up camp. And, and to give perspective, I was about 500 yards from the camp or from his cabin, but uh, through the woods, I couldn't see it. I felt like this was secluded enough to do what I needed to do. So I set my stuff down and I start uh, setting up my shelter. And I got my shelter set up and then I start go to collect firewood and I get this feeling that, some, that I'm being watched, that somebody's watching me. I know you guys, have, you've, you've had that, people have had that before uh, where you just, you know, you feel like you're being looked at. And uh, it was, it wasn't, it didn't stop me in my tracks, but it definitely was something that I took note of. And I, I the only sound I could hear uh, once you feel like you're being watched, you start kind of listening for things. And the only sound you can hear out here is leaves rustling and uh, breeze through the trees, stuff like that, because there's no highways or no major roads or anything. So there's no road noise, no cars or anything. Uh, so the only thing, I'm the only one making noise. And I, I kind of took it as, you know, this is the first time I've been out here in a while. I hadn't been camping or I hadn't been there at all, but first time I'd actually been out in the woods in a while. So I just, you know, kind of chalked it up to, you know, just kind of getting back used to that element. And, uh, I did, I set my fire up and, uh, my buddy came back about dusk time and he showed up to my campsite cause I was the only one that had a fire going to cook on. So he sat down there and, uh, we were kind of discussing what we were going to do the next day. He kind of drew me a, uh, a crude map to give me an idea where there are different food plots and stuff that they had set up. And we had decided he was going to go east and I was going to go west. <clears throat> and uh, he left uh, probably around, I'd say around 930. And I sat there by the fire and I built up the fire. I took it down from a cook fire and built up a self-feeding fire so I wouldn't have to get up every hour and put a log on it or stoke it. I could just kind of let it feed itself. Uh, I know you guys are used to, uh, some pretty cold winters up there down where we're at. They're pretty mild. So, you know, daytime about that time of year, 
at that particular time was running around 50, 55 at night. It was going to get in the high 30s, and that's, that's pretty cold for us. So fire was definitely in order. And I get the fire going, and it's probably about 10.30 or so. I lay down inside my lean-to that I had built there, and I'm just listening to nature, and it's uh, very serene, very peaceful, and I'm, I'm just I'm feeling real comfortable at that particular time, and I'm dozing off. And in that twilight period between sleep and awake, I get pulled awake by sound, um, like jarred awake. Uh, I, uh, I know I don't know exactly what it's called. I've heard where you know people are so tired when they lay down, their body just their all their synapses and everything shut down at once, and it sounds like a loud bang, and it wakes you up. That's kind of like what it was, but it wasn't a loud bang. I, as soon as I woke up, I start kind of looking around because I know something woke me up, but I don't know what it was. And then probably about uh, 30 or so seconds later, I hear a howl that comes out of the north. And in the midst of trying to figure out what that howl was, I heard another howl about 15 seconds later, and it came from the south. And that howl had a different tone than the one that I had just heard. And I'm sitting here trying to place what animal this is. I, I've been in the woods enough to, to know what a cougar sounds like or what a, uh, a bobcat. I know they make some strange noises. I know coyotes make strange noises, and I know fox do, and We've got a pretty decent bear population down there. Um, there aren't no cows in that particular region, no agriculture to speak of. So I'm racking my, my brain trying to figure out what animal this is. And while I'm thinking about it, I don't know exactly how much time passed. I'm guessing probably no more than about a minute or two. I hear the same round again. I hear the howl come out of the north. And then 15 or so seconds later, I hear one come out of the south. And these were... These were air raid loud sounds. Um, I could tell they were far off, but they were loud and they were clear. And the tonality of the two were different to the point that it sounded like, if this makes sense, it sounded like the one in the south was answering the one in the north. Uh, there was kind of a crescendo of the one that came out of the north, and then there was kind of a... Uh, I don't know, a kind of a, an answering tone, the one out of the South. And I, I, I was, I wasn't scared. I was more curious. Well, you know, what in the heck is that? Um, I, I, I couldn't place the animal. Um, so I, I lay there, I wait and listen for a little bit and I don't hear anything. And eventually I slip off to sleep. And I guess I woke up probably around 4.30. It was just before my alarm went off. I got up. I go to making, get the coffee on the cook and uh, get breakfast going. And my buddy shows up and we eat breakfast. And I asked him when he showed up, I said, hey, man, did you hear a howl or anything, a noise last night coming out of the woods? And, you know, because, I mean, it was loud enough. He was only 500 yards from me. I know that he had to have heard it uh, if, if he was awake. And he said, no, I never heard it. And I didn't hear anything. And I explained it to him what it was. And he told me that it was probably just a coyote or, uh, I think he might've said a fox or something like that, you know, something of that nature. I said, yeah, I don't think so, but whatever. Um, 
he's a, he's a real kind of a, a monotone kind of guy. He don't get excited over anything. So he, he's not going to put, uh, put too much of his uh, brain matter into wondering what the sound is. He heads off to the uh, east and I head off to the west to go to our um, hunting ground where we decided to go. And uh, we're, a, we're probably about a half a mile away from each other uh, from where we wind up. It's uh, still dark when I'm headed out. I've got my red lamp on and I get to a, uh, I get to a bit of a clearing. I'm following a trail and I can tell by the, by the, the marks on the tree that the deer's in the rut. Uh, there was a new moon that night. So I know they weren't feeding. So I'm thinking there's a good chance we're going to see something today. And we get out to, or I get out to a, uh, uh, this, uh, pine tree that's there. And then I see a, uh, tree stand, an old tree stand setting up about probably 15 feet up. So I climb up in it and I doze off cause it's still dark. And right about daybreak, I wake up and I'm, I'm pulled out of my sleep. I, I, that's the best way I can explain it. I didn't wake up naturally. I was pulled out of my sleep, not physically, but just like something woke me up. And as soon as I woke up, I had this feeling I was being watched. It was a lot stronger than the feeling I had today, the, the uh, afternoon before. This one was extremely like, it's almost like I would have, I would have probably bet money that there was somebody there. And, you know, I'm starting to think, you know, maybe there's uh maybe there's a vagabond or a drifter or some fugitive or something that's, that's, uh, pick this area over here to lay out and, and, and camp and get away from everybody and hide out. I mean, it's not a bad idea. It's remote. Not many people use it. Nobody knows about it. I'm thinking, you know, there's probably a hobo camp or something around here. So I, I climbed down out of the tree stand. Cause I, at this point I got to figure out what this is. I climbed down out of the tree stand and I crossed this food, this uh, food plot that they had put out there. This was an old food plot. They hadn't been over on this side for a long time. Um, I crossed the food plot and I head off of the trail and I come to a pine tree that has been the upper third of this pine tree has been snapped off. It's still connected by the bark and, uh, you know, it's, it's not completely torn off, but it's snapped off and laid at probably a 60 degree angle to the tree next to it. And all of the branches at the top of this thing had been broken, slam off to the, to right down to the bark, like it had been cleaned off. And, uh, I mean, it, you know, you hang out in the woods long enough, you're going to see weird things because it's not our natural environment. Uh, you, there's going to be things you're not going to be able to reconcile as a human because animals are different than we are. But this is something I had never cognitively seen you know i might have passed this or not this particular one but i might have passed that before but i know as soon as i laid eyes on this thing this is something crazy because there's no deadfall around there it's a pretty lively uh bit of woods through there and you know i know wind can come through and snap off a weak tree but not the upper third of it and clean the branches off and i'm looking around for branches i see nothing so i don't i don't know what this is and I, I start walking on because I'm, I still kind of have this feeling that I'm being watched. So I'm still kind of scouting about trying to see what I can find. 
And it's important to note at this time, I have not correlated any of these events. Uh, looking back on it, I kind of feel dumb that I had not correlated any of these experiences that I've had along the way as being connected. And I certainly didn't connect it to Sasquatch. Um, I go to move on and I come to a pond that's, uh, it looks like it hadn't been touched and cleaned up in a hundred years, severely overgrown. I get up kind of to the edge as close as I can get to it. And I just, I'm like, man, this water is stagnant and nasty because I've got this smell in my nose. It's very pungent. It's, uh, uh, and I, I told Tom yesterday, thinking back on it, it's like a sulfurous, uh, uh, ammonia, musty, nasty smell. And I'm thinking, you know, I, I know there's a such thing as, as uh, uh, flora and whatnot that die in the, in the water and it releases a gas. It stinks. And that's immediately what I've cast it to. But it definitely is something that's extremely pungent. And I need to get away from there because it stinks. So I move on. I scout out the rest of the day. I don't see anything. Uh, I've, I've done too much walking for deer to come near me. So I kind of chalked the day up as a loss in that respect. We get back to our campsite that night. And when my buddy goes back to the cabin, I lay down and I'm, I'm listening now for this, uh, sound. I'm like, I hope I hear this again. Maybe it'll, you know, jog my memory. I tried a couple of times on my phone to try to pull up different animal sounds that's in our particular uh region but i don't have enough service out there to to pull up a video so i'm just i'm just hoping i can hear it again and uh i didn't i didn't hear anything that night we got up the next morning and we hunted a little bit and then we wound up leaving <clears throat> i leave uh i don't really think much about any of those events again and I, you know, I rock on with life for about seven years and during COVID, I think it was, it was uh, October, November timeframe. We decide we're going to go to my wife's family. Uh, they like to go to the mountains around fall to see the changing of the leaves and whatnot. So we had planned a trip and this time I'm living in the panhandle of Florida, uh, so we go up with them, we meet them in Southwest Georgia, and we head up to Ella J, Georgia. And my father-in-law is a big Sasquatch enthusiast as far as the History Channel and YouTube goes. Uh, I, he's never seen anything. He's never, to my knowledge, he's never had any encounters or anything like that. He just, he believes, he believes in it by watching these shows. So... You know, I, I'm the type that indulge people like that, not because I don't believe them, because I, I've always kind of had the stance on on Bigfoot and uh, Sasquatch and the like that this is an animal. It would not surprise me if they came out tomorrow and said, yeah, they're real. Uh, it, it's it's it would be it's strange for me to think that people would dismiss it so heartily uh, when it is an animal. I mean, it it it's just strange to me, but. You know, it's not something that I put a lot of time and effort into to studying at this point. But my father-in-law does, and I kind of talk with him. I didn't mention anything about my experiences that I had because I didn't relate them to Sasquatch. I didn't know about vocalizations. I didn't know about those skunky smells, and I didn't know about uh, 
you know, the, the feeling of dread and like you're being watched in the broke off pine trees. I didn't know those things because I didn't do any studying on it. And we find out, or I found out, uh, that there was a Bigfoot museum in Ellijay. You guys might be familiar with it. I don't know, but it's called uh, Expedition Bigfoot. I think that it's operated by the BFRO. I'm not sure. Uh, it certainly seems like it is because it's more sideshow, roadside sideshow, more than it is a serious thing, in my opinion. But uh, we go in, and I'm looking around. You know, I'm, I'm not really reading much of the stuff. I'm, you know, kind of looking at the exhibits. I see this, what's supposed to be a petrified piece of uh, uh, Bigfoot scat that looks like a Louisville slugger. Uh I see, you know, different exhibits. It's mostly pictures of people taking pictures is what I'm seeing mostly. And I get to this exhibit they've got with headphones and it's called, it's the vocalization exhibit. And it's got, I want to say, you know, it's got a handful of different recordings from different places. And it's got a list there where they're from. And I'm like, oh, I can sit here and hear what they, what they sound like. I put my headphones on or put those headphones on. And the very first recording gave me chills and goosebumps like you wouldn't believe because it it was it identical to what I heard uh, in in the woods in Middle Georgia. It was it, it could have been recorded there. Uh, it was it was two different, at least two different uh, distinct sounds. And they did seem to the video or to the recording that they were a distance from one another. It sounded like one was answering the other. I mean, it was identical. And as soon as I heard that, that's when I divulged this information to my father-in-law. And now I probably listened to that recording 10 times. Now I go, I've got a fervor now. Now I go back through the museum because now I want to, because there is useful stuff there. I don't want to say that there's not. So I go back through the museum. And I start looking now I'm reading, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of taking in all the pieces of information that I can, because now it's, well, maybe what I heard was Sasquatch. I get to, uh, uh one of the, uh, write-ups there and it's, uh, talking about the smells that people have reported and I go reading through some of them. And as soon as I start reading the description of these smells, I immediately get that smell in my nose. I'm a, I'm a, uh, a sensory type of guy that way. Memory, it comes back. If I smell fresh cut grass, I think of my little league playing days when I was a kid. So, I mean, I can, I can, I can kind of pull smells back. I, I think a lot of people can do that. And as soon as I'm reading this, I smell that nasty stinking sulfurous kind of piss smell. And now I know what I must have seen or must have experienced there was, was a Sasquatch and they had a map up there with the different sightings in the state of Georgia. And there had been at that time, I think three or four sightings in Macon County, uh, spread out over a number of years. And, and Macon County is right about where, where the, those woods are between Macon and, and, and Thomaston. So, you know, maybe that, maybe this is, maybe this is what that was. That was in October of last year. Uh, I get home. 
And I call my buddy back in Georgia and I say, hey, do you still have access to that hunting land? I'd like to go deer hunt before the season closes out. I don't tell him any of my motives. Again, it wouldn't have, it wouldn't have registered with him anyway. So I'm, I'm like, hey, this would just be for me. And he's like, yeah, we can get back up there. It'll be after Christmas. That's, that's fine. So we went up there almost a year to the day. Uh, it was, it was definitely the same. It was the first weekend in January. And, uh, we get up there. I did the exact same thing that I did the time before I went and scouted out. I didn't even scout out. I went right to where my campsite was and I get to that clearing. I set up my camp. The only thing I did different through that whole thing was I built a different shelter. This time I built a, uh, an A-frame type shelter out of my tarp. Um, so I could have a breeze through cause at that particular time that year, it was about 70 during the day. Uh, and it was only going to get down in the fifties at night. And in my, my estimation, that's not cold enough for to, to have a, a roaring fire. So I just want a breeze kind of to blow through there. That comes into play in a, in a little bit. So I, it's almost like I couldn't wait for dark cause I wanted to, to, to sit there and listen and see if I could hear those calls again. I didn't have a feeling one that I was being watched. The first night I laid there, I must have stayed awake for two or three hours uh, trying to, hoping that I would hear something. I didn't hear anything. I drifted off to sleep. I woke up the next morning. I went back to that same area. And, and full disclosure, you probably already know this, I wasn't interested in deer hunting. I was interested in, in seeing if this was Sasquatch that I had experienced. That I think is where the BFRO failed in their, uh, their, their museum. If, if I think that's who runs it, whoever runs it, they failed in the, uh, aspect of kind of, uh, really driving home how dangerous these things are because you don't get that at all in that museum. So I have no fear of these things. I'm, I'm, I, I believe I'm really kind of hoping I see it in person and knowing what I know now, that's ridiculous. And, uh, I go off to that same area. The only thing that I can repeat is I seen the pine tree is still there. I didn't see any other trees broken. I went down to that pond. I didn't smell anything. And, and this went on for two days. Uh, we were actually went down on a Thursday. So we were there a, 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 an extra day than we normally, than we did the year, uh, seven years prior. And, uh, we didn't see any deer, we didn't see anything. I don't know why we stayed so long. And then the last night we were going to hunt Sunday morning and decided that, Hey, we'll just go into town. We won't even crank up a fire and cook. We'll go into town. We'll get some dinner. We'll come back, get us some sleep. And then we'll leave out first thing in the morning and get out of here. So we rode into town. Uh, that town would be the, the southern portion of Thomaston, Georgia. I'm not sure exactly what that little community is called, but there's a there's a, a waffle house up there. It's where we ate. And we come back. It's about a 25-minute drive. So we I, with the drive up there and eating and everything, we were gone probably two hours. When I got back, he dropped me off at the road about – halfway between the cabin and my campsite and I walk on down I've got my headlamp on it's dark at this point and as soon as I come up on to my campsite uh, 
I can see that it has been messed with. Uh, my, my camp stools knocked over. Um, my firewood that I had piled up there had been, uh, like it had been kicked over. My bag was pulled out of the, uh, my tent and, uh, just, it just been strewn about. And I looked through there, nothing was missing. The bag wasn't torn into. I had a cooler set in there. It was knocked over, but it wasn't open. And it was just like, you know, I, it, things start running through my mind. Like, well, you know, it, 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 this could be raccoons. It could be, you know, any number of mischievous animals could have come up here and did this. However, I am not going to take a chance. So I went back. I ran back to 500 yards or so back to the cabin and got my gun out of my case and chambered around. And I got back to the, uh, back to the campsite and I sat there, uh, I said, I lit up a little Coleman camp stove and I brewed me some coffee and I, I'm going to sit here with my little red lamp on. Cause I'm big, I'm bad about losing my night vision. If I get a, anything other than that. And I need to see, I feel like I need to be completely alert. And I sat there for probably, probably two hours. I don't hear anything. I don't feel anything. I don't smell anything. I just, I, I hear the, the breeze. So I said, well, I'm going to go lay down, get in my tent. I'm going to sleep. I, I didn't even bother to look at the phone. I'm guessing it was probably between 11 and 12. And I had hit that dozing point again. And I was jarred awake, wide awake, because this nasty, stinking smell had now permeated my tent. Where I was at, that breeze had basically filled my tent with that musty, pissy, stinking smell. And now my adrenaline's up, because now I know what messed up my campsite. I know what that smell is. And I know that the people that report this, they report it when the thing is close. My mistake at that point was I didn't pick up my gun when I went out, but I, I, I poked my head out of this tent, my tent. It was the, the eight, the apex of this tent was probably about four feet off the ground. I'm six foot three. So I'm hunched down and my head's kind of at the apex and I've got my lamp on and I'm scanning. I didn't look behind the tent. I'm looking at the clearing because behind me is woods. That's it. I had built my stuff up next to the tree line and I'm looking at this clearing and it's the longest portion of the clearing. So like I say, it's probably, it's, it's, it's no more than 20 foot to the other side of these trees. And I, about the third time I scanned back around third or fourth time right there at a right angle to my tent, like straight ahead, uh, I see eyes flashing back at me. Then they're not glowing because they're glowing. They're glowing because I got this red light on them and they're this deep yellowish bright eyes looking back at me. And now there's a fear that sets in. That's not, not something I felt before. It's not something I felt since it's not something I'm in a hurry to feel again. Um, it was definitely a crippling fear. Uh, at that particular time, I'm not taking stock of my situation as far as like what this thing looks like. It's, I can think back on it now and I can see it 
So I can tell you what it what I seen. And I seen a it was probably about seven foot tall. Uh my brother, I'm the shortest male in my family at six three. My brother stands about six nine. And I know he's taller than him, but he's not much taller. So I say he's about seven foot tall. But what really got me was how broad this thing was. It was uh, it, it was like a barrel with a head on it. And it, there's a that particular night, the moon was about three quarters. So there's a pretty good light that's coming through the canopy. And I got my red light, and he's kind of there's that 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 the moonlight is kind of casting him as a silhouette and my red light is sees i don't really see hair i know there's hair there i can't count them like it's not that vivid but it was black uh as best i can tell i can't tell you exactly what color it was i can just tell you it was black and i didn't see anything in the face except for the eyes the eyes i had enough light on it that I could make out facial features if I could have seen them, but it appeared to be mostly black hair or whatever color his hair was. It, it, it was either black or it was a dark brown. And I, you know, I had forgotten how bad it stunk. I had forgotten everything at this point. I'm now in fight or flight. I'm thinking if I wheel around and grab my gun, he'll clear that 20 feet to me before I can even chamber or before I can even get my round up. Where I could probably even put my hand on this gun. It's almost like I knew enough about this creature as soon as I seen it that I knew enough about it that it I was in its domicile. I didn't was not at the top of the food chain and I did not have the upper hand. I knew that I was in a situation that was very uh, uh, untenable for me if I was to try to stand off on this thing. Uh, it never got aggressive. I didn't hear anything. He didn't grunt at me or anything. He didn't didn't roar or anything like some um, like I've heard in some encounters. He just stared at me, and that stare was enough to make me realize that that anything that I do to try to stand off with this thing, I'm dead. Uh, and I've got a thirty alt six, and I already, as soon as I think of this thirty alt six, which is a pretty good round, um, I'm already thinking it's going to take more than one, even if I can get one off on him. And how accurate can you be in the dark with a rifle? There's no way I can even get a bead on him before he's in my face. So now the next thing is, well, run. But I, I now mind you, through this whole time, I hadn't broke my gaze with him. I can't, I can't move. I haven't moved anything. I'm still in this hunch position, almost to the point my knees and my legs are shaking because they're in this like half squat hunch position, and I'm sweating. And I'm just, I'm just, I'm scared to death at this point. Right about that time, uh, the Lord was looking after me because I heard a gunshot that came from my buddy's cabin. And as soon as I heard that gunshot, it was the only thing that broke my gaze with this thing. I had a reflex. I looked to the right because that was the direction uh, that his cabin was in. In that, what seemed like, you know, three or four minutes was only a few seconds. A number of things went through my head, not the least of which was I'm thinking, is this, is he getting attacked? Did he see one? Is there one over there? Hey, why would he fire his gun? It's, you know, it's, it's midnight. Why is he firing his gun? I turned back around and it's gone. I don't see any eyes. I don't hear anything, but I didn't wait around to see what happened. I grabbed my bag, my gun, and I hauled tail. 
uh, I left my tent, my sleeping bag, and that Coleman stove still sitting there, and my cooler still sitting there, and I know those things are probably still sitting there. Uh, I, and I, I got back to the campsite, and I've got my gun. I got back to the cabin. I got my gun ready because I don't know what I'm fixing to see. And I get back, and I just see my buddy throwing stuff in his truck. You know, he's all calm. You know, like I say, he's a one-note kind of guy. I'm like, what the hell are you doing, man? Why are you firing your gun? And uh, he said, well, I wanted to come. I wanted to leave. I couldn't sleep. So I figured if I fired my gun, it'd wake you up, and you'd come running, and you'd be awake, and you'd agree to leave. And I said, I ain't wasting no time. Let's get in the truck and get out of here. So I threw the rest of his crap in the back of the truck. We jumped in, and I drove out of there. And I didn't say anything to him until we got to the road. And I must have drove down that dirt road 70 miles an hour, which is on a clay dirt road with turns. That's pretty fast. You can I mean, but I, I didn't care. I mean, I would take a tree to the face before I wanted to face whatever I was, what I was looking at back there. By the time we got out to US 19 and I turned that truck south is the only time I can talk at this point. And I, I told him that I said, I seen whatever it was that I heard. And I don't know. I know you ain't going to believe that it was a Sasquatch. I believe that's what it was. You can't make me think any different, but I ain't never, I don't think I'm going to be able to come back up here with you. And I would probably not come back up here again. If I were you, well, he passed it off and then he, whatever he went to sleep and I, I was wide awake. I was wired. I, it was almost as if I had drank a whole pot of coffee. It was probably a, an hour down the road when my adrenaline started to come down to where, you know, when your adrenaline goes down, your joints start aching, your back starts aching and things like that. At this point, you know, I'm, my legs are tight. I'm starting to feel the, the physical trauma of being scared, being that afraid now that I'm away from it. I get back home. I didn't tell anybody about this. Um, I didn't tell my wife. I didn't tell my father-in-law because he's, he doesn't go looking for these things because those shows and stuff have sufficiently scared him enough that if he found out about this, which I don't know if he'll listen to this podcast, but if he ever found out about this, you know, it would be like, you know, why would you put yourself in that situation? You're my daughter's husband, you know, and, and, He's got a point, that, but like I say, I didn't know the danger because I wasn't apprised of it. And, you know, it's kind of rocked on this year with devouring information, you know, finding will and listen to old podcasts and things as much as I possibly can and, and listening to and getting on forums and, and listening to sightings and, and encounter stories and things like that. And, and, and you know, it's, it's just, it's gotten me here. I emailed you guys to tell you about it, and here I am. Yeah, you know, it's, um, but just real quick, I want to comment about the danger thing and the, um, you know, the feeling of being watched. It's, uh, you know, goes hand in hand with kind of a, kind of a premonition of danger. And I don't know why, you know, I'm not going to get into that, why uh, some people or some some organizations don't advise of the danger. But, yeah, they're absolutely. And there's a reason that we feel terrified 
of these things. Even if you see a, a, a relatively small one, it's it's extremely unnerving. Uh, now, what did your friend ever, you know, the guy with the kind of a monotone uh, personality, has he ever kind of come around and said, acknowledge that maybe, you know, just maybe you are what your encounter was worth taking what? heat and paying attention to? Well, um, the only time I've actually, uh, you know, he lives in Georgia. So when you move away, you kind of fall out of, of, no, we didn't fall out, but we, you know, we kind of fell out of touch. So right. I didn't talk to him much after the fact. Uh, the only time I talked to him, he called me and, and told me that the land had actually, the, whoever had owned the property had passed away and they were going to sell off the land in pieces. So it was no longer going to be available to go. And I was like, well, that's fine with me. Um, and he said, uh, that's the only time he's ever brought it up. He said, you still believe you saw Bigfoot? And I said, yeah. And he, he went, huh? And that's it. That's all that's ever been said. Um, I, I personally think knowing him, he's been going to those woods with, with, for, I, I believe he told me he'd been going there since the late nineties. I'm thinking the two times I've been there, I've encountered something. Um, he had to have seen something. Somebody in that family has seen something, but w the people that own that property, I don't know exactly what they do, but I know they're high up in the, uh, in, like the Georgia Bureau of investigations. So they're, you know, kind of like me in the sense of, you know, I've got a secret security clearance. If I, if this gets out, it could damage that. And I think it's probably the same way with them. I, I've, I just don't believe that they haven't witnessed something. Sure. How big is the property? Uh, just roughly approximately. It, it's interesting when you say they're going to sell it off in parcels. Well, it's a, it's a thousand acres and it's broke off into almost, uh, equal quarters that are split by these crossroads. So I don't know how they wound up splitting it off. Um, I didn't look and, and see how it was sold. I'm not even sure that wasn't, but probably, you know, three or four months ago, I think, uh, we, we spoke about that. And yeah, I mean, I, the, that, that much property, it would take a while for it to get into probate. So I don't know how they wound up doing that but i mean i imagine um bordering properties are going to get first right of refusal uh in a situation like that for a quick sale sure 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 i, I would imagine no um <clears throat> yeah it's um i want to go back to now did you have some kind of an encounter years prior to this one the uh the one at the where it was standing looking at you yeah i had the the one back in 2013 um that was the one where i heard the that's 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 the one where i heard the noises and felt like something was watching me i heard the howls and and that would be the encounter i talk about that would be the first one because now the second encounter definitely now i know what i heard and what i smelled and what i was experiencing the first time yeah. Have you ever heard those howls since? Um, Other than, you know, the recording? Well, uh, not like that. I have heard uh, where I live. I live uh, in the Panhandle and I border. My property borders uh, the 
Eglin Air Force Base Reservation. And uh, it's a large swath of land that the government owns. And they use some of it for bombing, but most of it is just woods. And it goes for uh, goes for a while. If you know much anything about the Panhandle, it starts at about 30 miles east of Pensacola and goes all the way over to Panama City and up to uh, Terea State Park in Mariana. And uh, there's actually... Since uh, since you and I spoke last night, uh, I got curious kind of what what had, if there'd been anything here. Um, and it's actually there's actually been four sightings in the last four years. No more than 20 miles from where I'm living right now. Uh, right. And they're all in the exact same area. They're on the they're south of Crestview, I-10 in on the Eglin Air Force Base Reservation. And here's the thing that's interesting. When you have four sightings, Will and I have estimated that at a minimum, you've got a 20 to 1 ratio. So for every sighting, you've got, you know, 20, I don't know, 10 or 20 uh, unreported sightings. I mean, what's what's the clearinghouse? Where, yeah. where do you report these sightings and where do, where do they become public information? There really isn't one. No, um we we act, we have a uh, there's a move, moving company down here, um, and the guy who owned that moving company he's uh, I found out he's actually an investigator for the BFRO and um, he's uh, he got in he's actually personally I've read his story last night he's never personally encountered one, but he's always heard him heard about them and heard the stories and he believes them. So he's, he's an investor. I don't know how you can do that, but he, he got into it. Um, I kind of think there's a bit of a kindred spirit amongst people who have had legitimate encounters and that would draw you into that line of work. But he, uh, he, I found out there's actually two organizations down here that, uh, have picked up in the last four years uh, be called their investigative organizations because of the sightings. Uh, there, there's been eight sightings in this in that same general region since '96, uh, I believe, and four of them have been in the last four years. Well, you know, the Panhandle is a pretty large chunk of land. I mean, it it could almost be a state in and of itself. People don't realize just how big the Panhandle mm-hmm. really is, and um, <clears throat> so. Going back, I want, I want to just kind of back up a little bit to the one where you you had locked eyes with this thing, and you said it was just you know just mad, like I, I like your description a barrel with a head on it, which is pretty accurate, right? It was for the one I seen. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, any um, any chance that? No, this was kind of dark when you saw this thing, right? It was just pretty much a silhouette of this thing, or did you pick up any color of, of its hair? No, I didn't. Uh, like I say, I had my red light on, so with that red light, I'm not right. going to really be able to tell. The only thing I can tell is is that it, it's kind of absorbing the light, so I know that it is a dark. I would, If I had to put money on it, Tom, I would tell you it was black, Um but it was at the very minimum a very dark brown because it 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 had a silhouette behind it, or had, it was cast in a silhouette because of the three quarter moon 
that was coming through the canopy. And then with my light on it, I did not see a discernible color. I feel yeah. like if it was lighter, I would have been able to pick, pick that up. Sure. Well, it's interesting. Um, you know, a barrel with a head on it. And that's, that's what Will has said about his encounter, that first encounter where he walked through the trees and here's this massive thing. And it's what everybody says. You know, it was so, you just hear time and again, all they can say is it was big. It yeah. was really big. Yeah, it wasn't, uh, you know, the, the, the drawings and the pictures and stuff that you see and the, right. uh, the artist renderings that, that people have given and then their encounters, if it looks like a, in my opinion, if it, if, if their rendering looks like a body builder or, you know, a, if honestly, if it has discernible human features, other than the fact that it's walking on two legs and has two arms, then it, it can't be correct in my opinion, because that's not what it looked like. Not the one I seen it. There was nothing human about this thing I was looking at. The eyes were staring at you. Could you pick up? Some people have talked about the they picked up a sense of, uh, um, you know, almost like a, a malicious intent or just a complete it, an emotion of I don't like you. Oh yeah, absolutely. That's exactly what I experienced. I uh, it, it was. It, I, it literally was as it was that feeling that I had that it didn't want me there or it meant me harm was as literal as if I had asked it when it showed up. Hey, do you like me? No. Okay. It was that I didn't, you know, it was, it was as if I, I it transferred this knowledge to me, not in a supernatural way, but just because of the way this get this thing's eyes looked, I knew it didn't want me there. I knew it didn't want me to be a, uh, to, to, to be there anymore. And and I felt like that there was no chance whatsoever that if I had stayed there and continued to stare this thing down, that I was not, that it was not going to eventually make a move at me. Yeah. Well, that's, uh, again, <clears throat> like you said, it was a godsend having your buddy, oh, how man. you described him last night as being passive aggressive. Yeah, that was a very, that's, that's him, monotone, passive aggressive. <laughs> wow. Well, listen, we're running a little bit short of time. Um, I want to thank you and stay on after we uh, wrap up this session. We'll chat with you a little bit about um, some other things. So, um, yeah, great. Thank you very much. And uh, we'll uh, we'll go from there. All right. In Bigfoot history. Green Drop Lake, summer or fall, 1915. The Lake Charles flood of New Westminster in 1957 swore a statutory declaration attesting the truth of the following story. I am 75 years of age and spent most of my life prospecting in the local mountains to the south of Hope, toward the American boundary and in Chilliwack Lake area. In 1915, Donald McRae and Green Hex of Agassiz, B.C., and myself from Hope were prospecting at Green Drop Lake, 25 miles south of Hope, and explored an area over an unknown divide. On the way back to Hope, near the Holy Cross Mountains, Green Hex, a half-breed Indian, told McRae and me a story. 
He claimed that he had seen alligators at what he called Alligator Lake, and wild humans at what he called Cougar Lake. Out of curiosity, we went with him. He had been there a week previously looking for a fur trap line. Sure enough, we saw his alligators, but they were black, twice the size of lizards in a small mud lake, presumably salamanders. The native lizards are all very small. A mile farther up was this Cougar Lake. Several years before, a fire swept over many square miles of mountains, which resulted in large areas of mountain huckleberry growth. Green hicks suddenly stopped and drew our attention to a large, light brown creature about eight feet high, standing on its hind legs, pulling berry bushes with one hand or paw toward him and putting the berries in his mouth with the other hand or paw. I was still wondering, and McRae and Green Hicks were arguing. Hicks said, it was a wild man, and McRae said, it is a bear. The creature heard us and suddenly disappeared in the brush about 200 yards away. As far as I'm concerned, the strange creature looked more like a human being. We've seen several black and brown bear on the trip, but that thing looked altogether different. Huge brown bear are known to be in Alaska, but have never been seen in southern British Columbia. I have never seen anything like this creature before or after this incident in 1915, in all my days of hunting and prospecting in British Columbia. Hello everyone, we have our uh, good friend and forensic anthropologist John joining us. John, how are you buddy? I'm good, how are you guys? Good, good. Well, Tom, Brian, I don't know which one of you guys wants to begin, but I know we've got a, uh, got a few questions and uh, just some things we can discuss. Brian, do you mind if I uh, jump in sure. first? Sure, sure. <laughs> okay, I'm dying to ask Mark questions. Oh, hey, Mark. First question I have is, and these are these are hypothetical, but um, let's say that there was um, the remains of a Bigfoot and and uh, with bones, um, mainly let's just say there's skeletal remains of a Bigfoot in a canyon, kind of like a maybe like a, a lava canyon or something like that, a rocky canyon. How long do you think? They could they be there for like years or decades, um, or do you think they would be, uh, you know, they decompose and uh, you know go into the soil or into the rocks very quickly? Well, if it's if it's a rocky canyon, assuming it's a surface deposit, meaning it's just on the it's deposited on the ground, not under the ground or anything, you're going to be dealing with a number of things. First of all, just decomposition, scavenger feeding, things like that are definitely going to disarticulate it and it's going to be spread all over. The other thing you have to deal with with uh, canyons is the, the, the operation of water coming through the canyons, um, you know, uh, runoff, rain, rain runoff, uh, that kind of thing, which is going to scatter the elements, the skeleton all over. Um, so in theory, the hard tissue, the bones or pieces of bones, fragments of bones, will certainly be there for easily for decades, probably. Um, soft tissue won't, but but uh, but the, the difficulty will be in actually finding it once you get down to the you know the fragments or, or what's left. But but yes, there should be some material left. It'll just be very hard to find. It won't be all together. 
that that of course is depending okay. on a lot of factors like you know is there runoff and that kind of thing okay all right so conceivably um uh it could be there for quite a while you know a number quite a while of time yeah i worked a, um a forensic case which was probably i mean it wasn't ancient or anything it was probably probably about 20 30 years old and it was in a uh kind of a wash where somebody found a lower jawbone and uh the the it was uh, up above the washer to the to the left of the of the actual kind of it was a seasonal kind of creek and up to the left of that was it's a slope and so the the police had me looking in the riverbed or the creek bed for different parts i said it's not the creek bed because these things don't stay in the same place i said if anything it'll be up on the slope and we searched for like a week and then sure enough it was up on the slope but yeah so so none of the stuff is going to be in the same spot as where it kind of fell it'll be sca uh, scattered by by erosion rain and mostly scavengers Okay. And um, what about, uh, I don't know if this is the right word, but mummification or um, has there ever been a situation where you would have like a intact or nearly intact skeleton over a period of time? Or is it pretty much a given that, that it's over a period of time, it's going to be scattered and well, so you're going to have, depending on the environment, right? If you, if it's a, hot sunny kind of area you're probably going to have what we call desiccation of tissue and so the the ligaments the tendons the thing that connects bone to muscle and muscle to muscle those things that if they desiccate they could kind of keep fragments of bone together i've i've recovered you know entire leg you know upper and lower leg bones because they were stuck together by dry tissue I did a um, case where you had somebody was beaten in the head. They were tied to the chair and beaten in the head. It was a drug thing. And their skulls in a million pieces, but it was left in a canyon and held together by soft tissue. And so it was like a jigsaw puzzle. So, yeah, it's absolutely possible. Um, if you're talking about, like, really, really old stuff, then I think it's less likely. But if you're talking about a few decades, um, you know, unless it's, like, mummified and buried, which we see, of course, in ancient civilizations, but... Generally speaking, if it's on the surface, there will be some desiccation given the environment, but not necessarily for more than just a few decades. Okay. And, and John, I apologize. I just got off the phone with a guy named Mark, so I think I accidentally called you Mark, so it's John. <laughs> uh, um, so just for our listeners out there, um, desiccation, real quick, what's, what's the definition? Well, textbook definition, I, I, I don't know if I can rattle that off the top of my head, but desiccation basically is uh, when the moisture in the soft tissue is essentially cooked out because of the because uh, um, of the environment, wind, uh, sun, things like that, ultraviolet radiation. So basically, when you when you see a mummy, right, so like a mummified face of King Tut, that's a desiccated tissue. Okay, okay, gotcha. Um, are there any conditions uh, in the natural that might encourage uh, mummification? Oh, sure. Uh, sure. Um, hot, dry environments are conducive to that kind of thing, for sure. Okay. All right. So that that explains those Western movies I like to watch where you see the deserts out in the – or you see the skeletons out in the desert. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And that well, yeah, that reminds me of a case we did. I can't remember the name of the guy, but there was a um, – gosh, it's a – I can't remember the name of the case, but it was – 
my my professor when I was at grad school told us about it. She'd worked on it. There was a, basically an old cowboy who died and was just kind of naturally mummified, and he found his way through kind of circuses and fun houses and ended up being hung up in like a haunted house and everyone thought it was fake and it was actually real. So, uh, so yeah, it does, it does happen naturally. <laughs> I wonder if there's any laws against that. We're not going to go there. What a way to end up though, huh? <laughs> I know. I, I can't remember the name of the guy. I should look it up. It's actually a pretty funny story, but, uh, it happens. Oh boy. Um, all right. I'm going to, I've got a bunch of questions, but I'm going to, I'll, uh, pass it off to uh, Brian for a moment. Well, well sure. Um, like, how long does it take for like a body to decompose like that um, to mummify, quote unquote? Um, like, in, in your experience, like, uh, how long would it take for that? Well, it kind of depends what you mean by mummify, right? If we're talking about just desiccated tissue adhering to the um, adhering to the bones and maybe keeping some bones connected together. I mean, that one case I worked uh, with the skull uh, bashed to pieces, that was probably six months old. Um, but if you're talking about in intact skeletons, I mean, that has to be, especially if they're buried, right? If they're buried, they're probably not going to mummify if they're buried. They have to be on the surface usually unless they're prepared like uh, like the ancient Egyptians prepared their the bodies so they could be mummified. But um, So how long would it take? I mean, it could take, depending on the environment, anywhere from six months to a couple of years. I imagine they'd have to be untouched by any animals and things like that too. Yeah, that's the key because generally they're not even going to have the opportunity to be mummified in whole. Right. Um, uh, Tom, uh, do you have any other uh, questions from the listeners? Or is maybe maybe Tom's doing something for a moment. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I, I think that you know we were thinking. Uh, no, about... no, no, no. I. <laughs> oh, there he is. Yeah, I, I do have some other questions, but uh, I'm going to. Brian, if you got one, go go ahead. Well, just uh, just in general, uh, just just with the subject of of Bigfoot, uh, we, we were talking earlier about their arms and how long they are. Um, is that something that's kind of unique for for uh, primates in general, like how long their arms are and if they swing their arms when they walk? Well, that's interesting. So it all has to do with locomotion and what their locomotion is right so throughout hominid evolution you have uh, you know hominid meaning what i'm speaking of is bipedal evolution so you have legs getting longer and arms relatively getting shorter so if we're talking about a true habitual biped like a human like a neanderthal um you know australopithecine something like that the 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 ratio of of uh, of our arm to leg is going to be such that the legs are emphasized, they're longer, and the arms are shorter. If you're like a quadruped, like a or a, I should say like a knuckle walker, like a a gorilla, you're going to have still you know pretty long arms because you're going to be leaning forward, knuckle walking. Same thing with chimps, gibbons, the lesser apes, gibbons and siamangs have arms that are longer than their legs because they're they're brachiators, they're swinging from the trees and so on. So I would imagine. Uh, that just kind of based on eyewitness reports and encounters and things like that, that that their 
arm to leg ratio shouldn't be much different than than ours or Neanderthals. Interesting. Um, so, so Will, uh, what, what is your experience with uh, reports that, that you've seen um, to that? Well, a lot of people, you know, talk about them having relatively long arms. Of course, that could be just appearance, you know. Right, um, yeah. It, but it also could be that that's some sort of a, maybe an intermediary stage in development, you know, where there's that's maybe a leftover. Uh, because we do get reports of them part, part of the time, um, and, and I guess it would be knuckle walking because they do occasionally go on all fours, but mostly are bipedal. So, you know, it really depends on where they are in their development. Well, well that's interesting because if you think of us going on all fours, except for like toddlers, you know, babies, us being on all fours is super uncomfortable. It just, it's not, we're not put together that way. So it wouldn't surprise me um, if they did do that, if their arm ratio of their brachial index is a little bit different than ours. Um, you know, if they have longer arms, especially, here's the other thing. Again, I don't know much about big fit locomotion and all that kind of stuff, but if if there's any, I, I, I think, and you guys can correct me on this, but I think there's encounters and some feeling that they do spend time in trees. And if they have that mid-tarsal break, and if they have arms that are longer than like a modern kind of what our ratio would be, that would also be evidence for them spending some time in trees and still needing to be able to break eat a little bit or, you know, climb on the branches. Right, right. Yeah, and we do get reports of that. Yeah, that makes you know, sense. That, 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 that's interesting. Uh, Will, Will uh, do you think that they uh, spend time in trees? Um, um, I, I know that, like, obviously – we know that most of the time that they walk bipedally, but uh, do you think that they actually spend time in trees? Uh, we get reports of it, sure. What's interesting is if you look at one of the oldest human kind of ancestors, I mean, I don't know, I don't believe in a missing link. I think every, everything's a link, but there's a, there's a species, I think that's four and a half million years old, something like that, called Artipithecus ramidus. And Artipithecus ramidus is interesting because it was, it had the the pelvis and the, and the 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 trunk and everything of a definite biped, but it had a it had feet that could grip. So the big toe was set back almost like a thumb. It had a it had mid tarsal break. Um, so the supposition is that it was intermediary between coming down from the trees and and being able to walk bipedally. Which of course there has to be some intermediate step there. So Artipithecus ramidus is thought to be that kind of that step between. So my point in saying that is that we do see in the fossil record other hominids that had that mix of behaviors, ground and, and arboreal. I got a question um, on the mid-tarsal break. Um, could you go into a little bit of explanation about exactly what the mid-tarsal break is and what advantage it might have for these creatures? Why would they have it? Why do we, why do we not have it? Well, okay. So a, a mid a mid tarsal break would be exactly. And my, again, this a little bit of this is my opinion, but um, mid tarsal break. Your tarsals are your your um the 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 bones of the middle of the foot, right? So uh, um, the the 
the metatarsals of the bones of the foot, the tarsals of the bones toward the heel. So the metatarsal break is the break between that middle foot and the heel, which allows for some sort of pushing off or even a little bit of prehensility, a little bit of flexibility when you're sit when you're standing on an unstable surface like a you know like a branch or something like that. So um, it's a break between that midfoot and the heel. So the reason for that would be so you you know you don't you don't necessarily need it to be a stable support all the time. You would need it to be able to kind of not wrap all the way around, but you need it to kind of grip to something um, something. Um, something smaller than the ground. Um, now, why we don't have it is because we don't need it. Our, our feet are 100% adapted to be stable supports, right? We're not in the trees. We, you know, our, our feet are very specialized to keep us upright and to, and to walk on the ground. So you mentioned a little bit about possibility of prehensile uh, with the, with the mid-tarsal break. So that actually um, could like help them grip onto rocks and grip onto uh, uh, the ground and, you know, similar, not identical, but maybe similar to other great apes. Yeah. Uneven surfaces. Sure. Yep. Okay. Interesting. Mark, I I just sent you a picture of a cast that I have and I sent it to the guys also. Um, I I don't know if you have have, had a chance to look at it. Um, It's kind of got an interesting feature because, um, Oh, sorry. I did the same thing, John. It's okay. Um, Anyway, yeah, we got this guest. It's really interesting. It's coming up. But uh, anyway, this foot, uh, it has what was called, they used to call it a double ball. And and I don't know if that's any sort of a feature that might help a foot grasp or not, but it's it's an interesting item. And they used to find them a lot in the Bluff Creek area. Mm. Yeah, I've not heard of that anatomically in in moderns that I've that I'm aware of, and I don't, I'm not sure what would cause that specifically. I mean, we, it couldn't literally be a double ball. The foot right, be correct. Just, that's actually wrong, but um, yeah, that would suggest some sort of flexibility between the tarsals and the metatarsals. Um, again, our the middle of our foot needs to stay relatively stable, um, but if you walk around uneven surfaces and climbing, you would definitely want to be able to use it to grip. And you know one thing I've noticed in the cast, uh, the f- and, and footprints I've seen, um, is these feet have seem to have a really thick pad. Um, in other words, the foot flexes around objects pretty easily as they're moving. Um, just a you know kind of a point of interest there. It's it's not quite as as uh, you know th- the the skin doesn't seem to be as as shallow you know between the bone and, and the exterior of the foot as ours are but uh well and if you look at the skin of the feet of uh of a great ape for example very i mean it appears to be very leathery very thick and of course it would have to be because they're not, they're not wearing shoes right we've re- we've relaxed natural selection on our feet because we have you know we have tools meaning shoes and things to to you know so if you're an individual with a thinner kind of thinner skin or less rough uh bottom of the foot it's not going to matter you're wearing shoes who cares but uh, you know and that's something we discussed also previously um <laughs> you know there was a question someone sent in about uh you know people finding these tracks you know apparently missing a toe with uh, four toes and uh, we, we sort of tossed that around a bit about well you know if you're out wandering around barefoot all the time uh you know things happen <laughs> you're gonna lose a toe sometimes well sure 
yeah. I mean, even just something like Frostbite or something. Yeah, you know, uh, Will, um, just in general, uh, how often do you get those reports where there is, uh, like, a, a footprint without the proper amount of toads? It, it's actually very seldom. Almost, it's almost exclusive that we have five toes, you know, with these reports. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Mark, uh, I go again. See, we're, we're on, we're on the, we're on that kick. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we got off the phone with the guy. He's, he's interesting. All right. Um, so John, quick question on tool use in manufacturing. And, and this is something that we'd sort of discussed uh, previously but what are what are the capabilities of known primates that that have not only tool use, but do they have the ability to maybe fabricate or manufacture fashion crude tools? Yeah, I mean chimpanzees, uh, for example, will prepare sticks, and this is actually pretty fascinating. They'll they'll, they'll they use sticks to, to termite fish, so they'll take a stick. And they'll dip it in a um, in the a termite mound, the hole of a termite mound, and it'll, they'll pull out termites and, and and then pluck them off with their lips. But the interesting thing is, what they'll do is if they find a stick that they think will be good, even though there's not a termite mound anywhere around, they'll strip the stick of all the leaves and the extra little twigs, and they'll carry it with them to the termite mound. So they're they're it's it's fascinating because I mean you, one might think that's not very sophisticated and maybe it isn't, but the point is. They're, they're seeing something that has the potential to be something else for a time that is, and place that is not immediately in front of them. And they're using, of course, because they have the hands, you know, the, the, the flexible hands, they're able to, to not only use the tool, but prepare the tool. So somewhat unsophisticated compared to us, of course, but it is, the, the concept is exactly the same. Well, you know, and that, that is very interesting because it shows... Or I'll, I'll ask you: Does that show some sort of reasoning on their part, thinking ahead, planning oh, ahead? Oh, absolutely! And 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 um, uh, yeah, primates, especially great apes, are just absolutely fascinating that way. I mean, there was this, there's been there's been accounts of chimps in zoos, like uh, were, I can't remember what zoo it was, but they were they found these chimps uh, before the zoo was opening. They were stacking all these uh, these stones uh, in their enclosure, and like, what are they doing? Well. As soon as the zoo opened and people started to come, the chimps were throwing the stones at the at the uh, at the visitors. Of course, they couldn't get through because the because the fence. But the point is, you know, they were preparing something, preparing for something that had not occurred yet, but they knew was going to occur. So they weren't necessarily fashioning anything out of the stones, but still throwing using rock as as a weapon as a tool. And yeah, so there's we way way underestimate what's going on with the ape mind. <laughs> that is pretty cool. That's so they're stocking up on uh, ammunition, weapons, in a sense. Yep, and uh, and the um, the uh, the uh, the CBD, the uh, family of monkeys in in the in the, the New World, New World monkeys. Um, they uh, they they use rocks to pound nuts, and so they have, you'll find these. It's actually interesting. You'll find these whole areas where rocks have been used to pound nuts and so you have they have these uh it's like a mortar and pestle kind of a situation a grindstone situation that you would see with native americans so the interesting thing is i always think of this 
is if I was like an archaeologist, explorer, whatever, and I came upon this area, I would say to myself, humans were here grinding something, you're right? Uh, but that's not the answer. The answer was you could sit there and watch the monkeys do it, you know? You know, John, it reminds, makes me think of, um, you know, we get people talking about quote-unquote wood knocking, and I don't think that's what's going on. I think when people hear something like that, it's probably these guys using a rock as some form of tool. At least that's my impression. Well, yeah, and you know where I stand on this, Will. I mean, I just, it, there's no way, especially given what we know about um, other primates using tools and other animals using tools, but let's just keep it primates. Especially what we know with other primates using tools, there's, if these things, you know, are out there, and again, because I haven't experienced it firsthand, but they absolutely have to have some sort of tool culture. I don't know how sophisticated it is, but they have to. Mm-hmm. Um, so it would not surprise me that the using of the tools is going to make some sort of, you know, noise. So it makes sense to me. Yeah. Yeah. Hey, you know, you know uh, oh, yeah, oh, go oh, ahead, oh. Brian. No, no, go for it. Oh, oh I was going to say, John, do, do you think that these creatures are ever going to be officially discovered um, from the scientific community? Um, well, it's hard to predict the future. Um but, I mean, if they're out there, it's only a matter of time. I, I've never been, and this is where I may differ than some people, but I, I, I've i worked in government agencies before, both federal and local, you know. Um, and I just, uh, people give the government way too much credit for keeping secrets and conspiracies. I mean, I just, so so I, I, I have a hard time believing that there's some sort of governmental conspiracy that's going to keep it from coming out. Um, when it does, when something actually does get hit by a car or hunted or something, I don't know. I may be naive, but so I, I think if they're out there, then I think it's only, it has to be only a matter of time, right? It just has to be. So I've got a, a question. I, I, I'm kind of going back to tool use cause that's kind of interesting to me as well. Um, we had a report of, somebody who said that one of these creatures picked up and they had actually fashioned a, a pretty heavy piece of wood uh, in the shape of a boomerang and, and used it as a weapon. Um, what do you, can you comment on that? Or what are your thoughts? Do you think that's a possibility? Um, um, well, uh, are we talking like boomerang with the intention of having it come back, you know, like a true boomerang or just something in that shape? Well, it something was, it was something sh- in that shape, and it was it was a chunk of wood that was 80 pounds, and it looked like it had been fashioned for some time, in other words, rubbed and things like that, and it was actually thrown at a house through the second-story window. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, first of all, I mean, given the propensity for primates to throw things, which they love throwing things, and the ability to make and use tools, I mean... The, the whole impetus for it's it's amazing what bipedality can do once you take the pressure off of your hands to for locomotion uh, you can then start to not only take material carry material you can you now have time to fashion things out of it right as the brain gets bigger um, if you have fire you're sitting around the fire at night cooking your food okay well what are you doing you're 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 talking chatting whatever but you're also working on tools you're you're you know you're you're making new things so i, I just there's just no i mean i mean if a chimp can figure out how to make a, a stick work better for fishing termites than something that is way more evolved than a chimp 
could certainly, you know, work out something really good to throw. You know, I, I just, I, it to me, it completely fits into the hominid model. And, you know, just about all the things, all the behaviors we see are very much like the other, other primates. So it's not surprising. Yeah, and that's always where I've landed, as you guys know, where I've landed on these things. I mean, and, and again, we, it's called anthropology by analogy. But, I mean, so really all we have to compare it is, is to current primates and and so when people start talking about ufos and time slips i check out because uh, it's just to me what what do primates do and what what do we know that they do and then i use that as an analogy for kind of supposing what these things would be able to do too you know it's interesting i'm thinking in terms of tool manufacturing and how primates have been known to They'll adjust their behavior, um, and they can learn. They can learn new skills. Uh, they're apparently, I think, a lot smarter than the average person gives them credit for. Um, you mentioned you can envision them sitting around, you know, building tools. Do you think that would be something that would like um, be a learning process, almost like like when you struggle to study, you know, you're building new neural pathways and stuff like that. Do you think they can do any kind of a primate, Bigfoot or whatever, can do that and actually increase their knowledge or their learning capabilities? Yeah, I mean, there's so yes, so it's what's it's been shown scientifically that novel in- information uh, creates new connections in the brain and new ways of putting ideas together, right? So in other words, new situations, new environments, new social groups, whatever it may be, actually helps the brain to make new connections. The other thing is, if we're talking, you know, biologically, then we're talking about um, natural selection. So nature selecting for individuals with bigger brains, you know, with more complex brains, better problem solving ability, especially when you're talking about but forbidding environments like, uh, you know, like, like cold, you know, cold winters, forests, uh, lots of um, uh, predators, uh, different terrains, things like that. So these are very, very complex environments. And so you, in order to adapt and survive, you have to be able to problem solve. I mean, look at Neanderthals. Neanderthals, people say they're just Neanderthals, but they were pretty darn good problem solvers. And the way they solved their problems happened to last for you know, hundreds of thousands of years, they didn't change much. Human beings were changing constantly, you know, like two caves down the road, but Neanderthals kind of stuck with the same thing. But the point is they had really, you know, they had what worked for them. They had, they had technology and they sat around the fire and making their technology. They had their Mysterian tools and, you know, things like that that worked well for them. Now, let me ask you this, because one of the examples that kind of comes to mind is, and you're, you're probably familiar with it, but there's a chimp out there, and I, I get the two mixed up, whether it's a billy ape or a bonobo, I can't remember, but one of them is a, is a huge chimp, and it actually learned how to build a fire, roast marshmallows. It discovered that marshmallows over the fire taste better than marshmallows out of the bag. <laughs> Have you heard of this? Have you seen that video? No, I haven't heard of it, but it doesn't. It, it, it just doesn't surprise me. I mean, there's tons of... Uh, you know, Duke University and some other places have done a lot of work with chimps and just, you know, they're they're very good problem solvers. They're very, very um, 
self-interest is a big thing to them to them obviously they're not great at sharing necessarily but if there's a treat involved or some sort of reward um they're very very clever at figuring it out so it doesn't surprise me in the least okay yeah it, it was a it was an amusing video it was like you know the, a they got a sweet tooth b they know how to make it better <laughs> yeah yeah what's interesting is they've done they've done experiments with um with chimps where they do uh i think this was at duke you know no, it might have been yeah i think it was duke where they do no i take it back it's, it was in germany sorry i'm getting my stuff mixed up but anyway they're doing um they're studying the evolution of dogs and comparing them to to primates and um a dog if you if you like hide treats if you have like three buckets and you hide a treat under one of the buckets if you point to the bucket with the treat under it to a dog the dog will know to go to that bucket if you point to the bucket with the treat under it to a chimp the chimp won't even react because it doesn't occur to the chimp that you're trying to help it right they're just so kind of they're, they're so self-interested um it just doesn't occur to them that there's some sort of cooperation there whereas dogs because they've lived near us for 10,000 years to them it's like it's axiomatic it works perfectly but anyway so yeah so my point is that that chimps are very if it's something that can benefit them they'll figure it out they're very clever yeah I got another question uh, in regards to chimps eating uh, gorillas and and definitely how it would apply to these creatures. Um, do you think that they would, uh, do you think they might have cannibalistic uh, abilities? Do you think they're cannibalistic? Would they eat people? We've seen the videos where chimps will pack hunt and to kill a, a monkey, you know, some sort of a monkey and eat it. Um, do you think if Bigfoot exists, which of course we think it does, <laughs> do you think that they would also uh, potentially eat people? Eat their own kind, you mean? No, 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 humans. Is there any reason they wouldn't oh, eat a human? Oh, okay. Oh, okay, I see what you're saying. Yeah, um, well, I mean, uh, I, I don't see any reason. It, it just kind of depends on what you think the origin of them is, right? If there were, if we share some sort of really recent evolutionary affinity, um, then they might see it as kind of, as kind of a because there's a natural kind of genetic tendency to not cannibalize because it because in higher primates there's other ways to get things done and it just doesn't help the gene pool um but uh it just kind of depends on how they see us and i don't have the answer to that but is it possible yeah it's possible i mean almost all primates are omnivorous um that's why they're all heterodontal lots of different kinds of teeth there's a few that are pretty specialized but um I don't see why they wouldn't, especially knowing that chimps will attack humans, and I don't know if they'll necessarily eat them, but they'll certainly bite them. So, yeah, I, I, I couldn't say no at this point. I know that's not much of an answer, but... No, no, a very good answer. Yeah. Um, so I'll, I'll move on to another question here, and this is actually one of my favorites, and this has to do with, um, you know, the limbic system. Uh if, if uh, I think we talked about this last time, how they're uh, Bigfoot, or you know, they have a they have a large brain, a large uh, cranial capacity, but I think you had mentioned that I don't know if you're talking about Bigfoot or another ape, where their um, their skull, their cranial is horizontal, 
uh, oh. development, whereas ours was vertical, and that gave us reasoning, whereas they are more emotional, more almost like a reptilian brain? Well, yeah, kind of. I mean, the, the, so I think probably what I was referring to is Neanderthals have brains that are low, long, and bulging at the sides, uh, whereas we're more vertical, um, more frontal. Um, and I think that gives us an advantage on 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 creativity, on being able to you know use iterative processes where we, where we innovate, we build one thing on top of another. Neanderthal, like I was saying earlier, once it's figured something out, it kind of sticks with that for a long time. Um, but as far as the reptilian brain, that's like super, super primitive. That's like fight or flight. That's like, you know, just very basic uh, uh, sustenance kind of uh, just kind of living moment to moment kind of a thing. So I don't, uh, I would not analogize uh, other primates with that at all. I think most primates are well beyond that. Um, but yes, but that is the, the, the reptilian brain is the, that's the kind of model brain that, that other brains are built on top of. So we have that reptile part. It's just been superseded by all the other, you know, more complex cognitive functions that we have. But the thing about, uh, you know, no one really knows, or at least I don't think they know, that the different shape of the Neanderthal skull. Some people say it has to do with actually with balance and, and so on. But but we all we know is that their technology, their tools, evidence for innovation and invention and so on, seem to stall for long periods of time. Whereas in, hum in modern humans living, like I say, in the same place, like, for example, in Israel, you had Neanderthals and, and modern humans living next to each other. Um, all we know is from the archaeological evidence, which suggests that there, there was some sort of different thinking, problem-solving capacity going on. And then when we look at the brain shape, we say, okay, well, maybe this has something to do with it. But I'm not sure if anyone's ever actually figured that out on, on why that is, unless you can see a Neanderthal brain. And see what the parts are. You're kind of guessing. I, I guess the thing, the same thing, would be hold true with the Sasquatch. Uh, now they haven't seemed to have changed much at all for, you know, however long they've been discussed. You know, with native peoples and so on. But um, they don't exhibit any of those kinds of uh, developmental changes. You know, currently, um, and the, the one notable difference that would be um, their behavior. They seem to have very short tempers. Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. But, and that's a and that's a very primate thing too, right? I mean, right? It's it's you know very very defensive, territorial, um, suspicious. Again, going back to the chimps, chimp doesn't think you're helping it because chimps don't help each other, you know, for the most part, unless they're going to get something out of it. So yeah, that makes that makes sense. Yeah, you know, uh, one question I have, just in terms of anatomy, uh, what are the main differences that you see between like a human and a Sasquatch, like just just in terms of an anatomy. Based on based on uh, encounters and witness accounts and so on. So obviously size, right? But um, yeah. size is gonna is a big 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 factor. Robusticity, so bigger mus muscles, which mean bigger muscle attachments. Um, more of a what we call superorbital tori or a brow ridge. Um, not a vertical forehead, not a vertical skull, but a you know kind of kind of kind of Neanderthalish, long, low, bulging at the sides. Um, the thorax is the, uh, sorry, I 
getting into um, the chest. The the trunk is kind of nanotallish, deeper, a deeper thorax, which is a an adaptation to cold weather um, frequently. Um, but barrel chested, deep thorax. Um, other than that, I don't. I mean, there'll be kind of micro, so to speak, um, differences um, on the skeleton. But but I still, I truly do believe that unless you, if you came upon a skeleton in the, in the forest or somewhere, and there was a there was a Sasquatch, unless it was like really 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 big. I'd, I'd be willing to bet that somebody would just think that that was a modern, fully grown male, you know, human, because it yeah. should be pretty darn similar. Mm-hmm. So so similar that, I mean, maybe different, but similar enough, because I've seen a lot, a lot of skeletons, and nobody's the same, nobody's exactly the same, everyone's a little bit different, but but I think it'd be similar enough that someone would go, oh yeah, it's just it's human, and not kind of dig into the real minutiae, just because they're already assuming it's human. Right, right. And and what about what what about the eyes? Like, are the eyes similar or? Well, I mean, if you just go off of primates, I mean, they they would. I I I have. Uh, I go back and forth on this as far as night vision. Some people say they're nocturnal and all that, but if they're nocturnal, they're one of the few primates that actually is. I mean, there's the owl monkey and maybe a few other prosimians, but most apes are diurnal. Um, you know, going around during the day. So I doubt their eyes would be any bigger than normal. I doubt they would look any different, uh, except being, you know, big, absolutely, just absolutely bigger than ours because they're bigger creatures. I don't know about the eyes glowing red thing and the laser beams. I'm not sure about that. <laughs> you know, now one thing about the eyes, and I think people mistake this when they talk about them being nocturnal, is you have to look at the hours, you know, that they're active during those time periods. It's usually... Uh, plus or minus an hour of sunset and sunrise, so kind of around those time periods. It's all that's also when a lot of prey animals are moving. Yep. Um, you know, to and from their sleeping areas to feeding areas. Uh, so I, I would suspect that their uh, cones are probably, you know, more in use. They're they're looking at movement, not so much, you know, night vision capabilities. Uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, probably right. I mean, so uh, dawn and dusk, active during dawn and dusk, we call that being crepuscular, and so that would make sense. Bears are generally crepuscular, and a lot of predators are, like you say. So um, I, I don't, I doubt. I mean, they certainly have stereoscopic vision, um, emphasis on vision rather than hearing. Yeah. So yeah, I would think they'd be very similar to ours. And, and and the fact that they're an ambush predator. I mean, instead of just bumbling around in the dark, they're going to be sitting in a spot waiting, you know, for. Right. Probably yeah. along the game trail for something to come along. They see the movement and bingo. Yep. Yeah. John, you said something interesting a moment ago. Uh, caught my attention that uh, primates tend to be suspicious. They're not sharing creatures. They're suspicious. Um, how that? If you could comment a little bit, because this is something that we hear a lot, of, and that is why. How come? There's not Bigfoot uh, pictures captured on game cams. And number one, we think, well, probably they can see infrared. Number two, uh, if you could comment on how primates are, number one, suspicious, and number two, very, very keenly aware of their environment. Well, so so it 
and I, I don't mean to say that all primates are suspicious. I was focusing kind of mainly on chimps, common chimps, but um, but it, it, there's a real strong correlation, a real strong correlation between aggression, territoriality, uh, with the environment and with the social group, right? So, like, if you're a gelato baboon, you live in troops of hundreds, and you're living on the high plains, eating the grass, and you feel pretty safe, everything's pretty cool, because there's so many of you that if a predator comes, somebody is sure to see it, right? So it's kind of, it's, it's, you know, it's pretty mellow, unless you're fighting for a female, it's pretty mellow for the most part. Chimps, common chimps, live in areas that are very marginal, very, there's been a lot of, there's a lot of the um, uh, bushmeat market, there's a lot of deforestation, habitat loss, uh, encroachment, and it's just, it's a harder life. If you're a bonobo chimpanzee, pan paniscus, you're, you, that's a more of a, it's it's compared to commons, it's more of a kind of, uh, it's a more of a matriarchal society, they're a bit calmer, they 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 use sex to ease tension. They you know it's just kind of a different thing, and that's because their environment is less marginalized. I mean, it's probably getting more marginalized now, but but their environment is less threatened. There's a little more, um, or I should say, a little, little less resource stress. So it really kind of does depend. The amount of aggression and, and suspicion depends on the environment. Um, so you have some some that are more. Uh, you know, you have monkeys going around in Central America that are just jumping on people's tables and stuff because they're just, they're just totally they're not worried at all. Um, so, all this thing, all all that kind of thing is related to the environment. Now, so Sasquatch would, again, just kind of guessing, I would think, you know, pretty. They're not living. The environment would not let them live in huge troops like gelato baboons. Um, so there's smaller groups, fewer people to depend on, fewer people to watch out for predators. The environment is more for foreboding. There's more things that will, you know, that, that could that could hurt or kill you, you know, whether it be weather or especially if you're talking about human encroachment, um, that's, you know, people, they hear guns going off and clattering of, of cars and noises and things like that. I mean, that would be very, very rattling. So I would imagine that they're pretty on, on edge. So I think... Um, you know, it's a good thing about having the big brain and being able to kind of think things through. You can, you can conceptualize what is a enemy or what is safe, what is not safe. Um, and the other thing too is, primate brains and human brains, especially, but primate brains are just wired to see differences as being uh, threatening. So you know, one of the, one of the reasons that we have kind of this holdover of of um, you know, ethnic tension or racism or whatever you call it is, I mean, if I had a group that looked like me, then I then the chances are genetically they're part of my family, part of my kin group, and so they're going to look out for me. If you look different than me, that is the first indication that you might not be on my side, right? Even though these days it's silly, but from a basic evolutionary standpoint, it makes a lot of sense. So when you see something that doesn't look like you, it doesn't look like your group, your kin, your whatever, you immediately think, well, they're, they're not out to help me, right? And they may even be threatening. So it just, it's a, it's, it, it saves a lot more energy to avoid things and be frightened of things than it does to actually uh, be aggressive and fight, right? That's why primates have so many displays, you know, bluff charges, things like that, showing their teeth, things like that, because the energy cost of scaring somebody away or running away is a lot uh, better than actually getting into a fight and getting hurt and dying. You know, a couple of things you mentioned, uh, strike a chord, you know, the smaller groupings, you know, typically 
through everything I've learned all these years is the groups are about four to six individuals in a group. Um, and, uh, and the behaviors exactly. I mean, they're, they're very touchy about the areas they're in. If there's just a little too much human activity, they'll bug out and they'll leave those areas. Yeah, it would make sense. I mean, the carrying, what we call the carrying capacity, right? The ability for an environment to to host a large number of individuals or a number of individuals, the ca- carrying capacity would be pretty small, which is why you don't see, I mean, except for, you know, like elk or deer or something, you don't see large groups of things living together in those environments. Um, so I, I suppose the deer family, you know, the cervity would be a, a kind of an exception to that. I mean, there may be others, but um, but most things, bears, mountain lions, uh, I guess dogs are pretty, a coyote would be, I don't know if coyote are in big packs or not, but anyway, yeah, so I could totally see that. Yeah. You know, uh, Will, and uh, and also to, to John, uh, just, uh, just a quick question. Um, we, we hear... Uh, uh, different reports about their necks and they like a lot of people say that they don't have necks and I'm just curious about what you guys think about that like um, is that is that common with um, other primates or well their heads seem to sit right on the shoulders similar to what gorillas are built like mm-hmm. yeah and that um, that has to do probably also with vocal development um, also the fact that you have a big, deep thorax, big, deep chest, big lungs. So there's more air there. Um, the other thing too, is it, it, part of that also is just, uh, what we call the splenius capitis muscles that connect the back of the head to the spine and the sternocleidomastoid muscles, which connect the, um, the sides of the skull to the clavicles and the sternum in these individuals, they would have to be much bigger and much bigger means that the neck isn't like kind of a thinner it's not thinner than the head right like like it is on most of us it's actually about this because because those muscles are so big mm-hmm. yeah i mean i, I was just cur- curious about that because you know yeah we, we hear different reports and um yeah a lot of people say that they they don't have necks it's just like like will just said that the head is just kind of like sitting on its shoulders, basically. It gives that appearance, yeah. I mean, yeah. it's it's pretty universal. Yeah. Yeah, one, one of the things to, to kind of just to point out um, is that when we see, especially in a creature that you we don't really necessarily have much knowledge of and we're basing our understanding on eyewitness accounts, is it's easy to take characteristics that people see and then use them as generalities right so even within a species there's going to be a lot of infraspecies variation so like no two individuals except for twins are exactly alike so you're going to have individuals are going to just going to look different so some might have a bigger neck than others and um and and every other thing there's going to be variation i mean it's not super important to point out except that i do like to point out that um we don't want to draw like sweeping conclusions about a species based on um, individual characteristics yeah, and that is one of the biggest problems in the subject is, you know, people make those they want to put everything in a box and and then things don't fit in the box. Yeah, yep. yeah. Hey, and uh, John, and also I guess to Will as well. Uh, what do you think is the biggest misconception that a lot of people have when talking about this creature? Whether it's you know we're talking about um, 
like its physical features or just in general? Like what, what are the biggest misconceptions that you think that people have? Oh boy, there's so many. Where do you start? <laughs> uh, yeah, that's, that's a tough one because, and I think it's because, well, here's the one I have. Uh, people, because it's, it's so difficult for them to wrap their minds around it in a lot of cases. Um, you know, during a sighting, a sighting usually happens for moments. You know, my own were just moments in length. So, you know, I get a lot of people asking questions about all sorts of things, and I can't answer those because, you know, number one, I was scared to, you know, to death. And secondly, it only happened in a short time. So, um, you know, when a lot of people are prone to whatever is already in their frame of reference. So when they see something and they can't explain a lot of it, uh, you, you know, they'll come up with things that really aren't very realistic. You know, we're talking about portals and yeah. orbs and all that nonsense. Um, when they're completely rational explanations for things. Yeah. Yeah, that would that would just be my biggest thing. My biggest misconception is attributing some sort of supernatural or, you know, some sort of super special explanation for things that really probably fit right into a, con a natural continuum of things. And I think it's, it's funny. I think that uh, the whole idea of underground caves and, 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 and time slips and portals and things like that, I mean, that's all wonderful. But I think it's just an excuse that if you can't see it, well, if I can't find it, there must be some other reason, right? Exactly. Get more, get more clever than me. And, and you know, the, the fascinating part of it for me is the more I learn about the details, uh, you know, comparing attributes of them, behaviors, and so forth, uh, to other primates, how well they match up. It's nearly, I won't say identical, but they're very, very close among all these things. Yeah. Yeah, and, and which is why I I just I just really insist that people who are are you know build themselves as some sort of expert or researcher should at least have a basic understanding of how primates work and and, and those kinds of things just because it because you're right, Will. I mean, they're so they fit so nicely in there that that looking at things from that point of view really just really informs the whole thing. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Tom, I know you, you've got some uh, other things that people have sent in. Yeah. Um, so here's a question. And this is actually one that I've had myself. Um, and, and we can't we can't talk directly about Bigfoot, but um, Neanderthals, they they don't have language and they didn't have there's a theory that they did they would never have the ability to have a complex spoken language. And it has to do with, and this is where I'm asking John because I don't know, it was a bone structure or something in their throat that prevented them from having a language. Uh, can you elaborate on that? And we could maybe extrapolate and apply that towards Bigfoot. Yeah, well, the feeling is based on their hyoid bones, which is the bone that kind of holds the throat in place, is that they're the, the position and the shape of uh, their windpipes would not allow for the range of noises that we can that we can make. Also, there's a genetic mutation called FOX2P, I think it is, which Neanderthal DNA has been shown to not have, which is an important um, important uh, allele for uh, that plays into the ability to um, make the language right. So, so we're using kind of anecdotal evidence 
to suggest that they might not have. The problem with that is um, a couple problems with that. One is just, again, it's like what I said before, if you see some individual variation where the hyoid bone is a little bit different, that doesn't mean the whole species is like that. But um, but the other thing is, unless I used to tell my students when I was teaching college, I said, look, unless you can get in a time machine and go back and see what's going on, you really don't know. Um, so, so yeah, so the, 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 the idea is it, it probably didn't have language on the level that we did, but uh, that we do, but I think they have to have something. They had to have some sort of verbal communication. It just probably wasn't as nuanced, and uh, I'm not sure if they had, you know, the same level of syntax and phonemes and morphemes and all those things that we have, but there had to be, I think there had to be something. I'm sure even like with chimps, there's probably a lot of visual cues that play into that also. Oh, yeah. Yep. Okay, so here's another question. Um, I don't know who had this one, but it's uh, one that came through. Okay, the possibility of Sasquatch being a descendant of, I'm going to botch this, but it's uh, Dryopithecus, a.k.a. Oak Ape. Um, is, is that a possibility? Um, I think that's kind of an open-ended question, but... Um, yeah, I mean... Dryopithecus, I mean, but that's a long time ago. Dryopithecus is, I think, millions of years old. Um, so, yeah, I mean, the answer would be if there would, there would have to be some sort of uh, um, evolutionary affiliation there. I just, how close it would be, it's hard to know. Now, was Dryopithecus, was it an extremely large ape? I'm just wondering if that's where they're going with this. Um, yeah, I'm not sure what the average, um, size was of Dryopithecus. I'm trying to remember, but, um, I don't recall from my training. Yeah. That it's they like, really it's that super, big. yeah. And it's super old too. It's like 10, 12 million years ago. I mean, it's like, it's one of the early, and the other thing about Dryopithecus is, unless I'm mistaken, I think all we have of Dryopithecus is a jawbone, is a piece of jaw. So um, I'm trying. I'm now recalling. I used to test my students on different fossils, and Dryopithecus is one of them. But yeah, I think we just have like the right part of a mandible for Dryopithecus. So it's got the eight teeth, and it's got it's of a certain size, but it's like 10, 12 million years old. So it's way back in the evolutionary history. So would it would it be related somewhere? Very likely. You know, I mean, there's parts all part of the bush, right? Okay. Good. Good. Uh, we have another question here, maybe from the same person. Um, could could the Ice Age floods have washed away any of the fossil record of Bigfoot? I think what they're looking for is, um, you know, is, could that explain why we're not finding Bigfoot in the fossil record? Oh, wow, that's super interesting. Um, well, yeah, I mean, it's probably for the same reason we don't find a lot of Gigantopithecus too, right? I mean... That's kind of an ice age. I mean, the ice age was only until 10, 12,000 years ago. Um, so a lot of that could have been carried off in receding, um, receding icebergs, things like that. Um, sure. The, the other thing, too, is the ice age really hit m hardest on the northern, you know, northern parts of the, of the world. And so those also happen to be the most forbidding environments and the environments in which, like, you know, if you're in South Africa... South Africa is a great place, right? There's a lot of primate diversity there, but um, 
probably more than other places, but it's also because it's preserved better. It's all volcanic and it's dry and, you know, the rain, you know, every season rains come and unearth something. Whereas if you're like in, you know, forested, relatively remote or very remote, uh, where people really aren't looking and where you have animals that, I mean, all kinds of large, especially during the ice age, you have a bunch of megafauna, um, you know, that are going around uh, scavenging, you know, pre preying on um, animals. And so it was one big kind of recycling system, um, probably more so than the arid or, or less, I should say, less wet um, southern parts of the world. Yeah, the so, environments yeah, I mean, wouldn't be conducive to fossilization. Right. Plus, that's exactly right. Plus, if you've got groups, you've got individuals that live in groups of four to six individuals, and they're they're not real close to one another. And and I recall, Jesus, many years ago, <laughs> my classwork, uh, they talked about for every fossil found, you you have to have at least a hundred thousand individuals of that species for that one fossil to have been created. So. Um, you know, if the population is spread out not that big, then your chances of finding fossils are pretty slim. Absolutely, yeah, slim. And uh, and there's a whole the whole idea of differential preservation, right? So anything can happen to to the remains. Right. I used to tell my my students that really, if you look at all the paleological excavation sites around the world, especially the ones dealing with primates, you're really only talking about the size of a few football fields, and this is where I get kind of cynical, but, I, but I'm pretty transparent with my students. And, and I'd say, look, the reality is we're drawing sweeping conclusions based on very fragmented, very small amounts of material, except in the cases of some more modern things like uh, Neanderthals and modern humans and archaic humans. But the farther back you go, we're drawing the, you know, we're, we're rewriting re re textbooks based on pieces of jaw that we find. And it's just, to me, it's just, it's a little interesting. I have to. I have to laugh. There's a term we used in the military called the swag method. <laughs> the, the scientific wild ass guess. Yep. Well, there's a lot of that going on, but no one's admitting it. <clears throat> the, the other thing too is, it, it's funny that uh, you know the 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 difference between the uh, the the scientific discovery of the Australopithecines versus the. Um, Homo erectus and, and, you know, and all this in South Africa, there's this big kind of controversy, one side telling the other side, uh, you know, I think Donald Johansson, when he discovered Lucy, was told, oh, you don't have anything, it's just a homo erectus, it's no big deal. And what I, again, what I try to convey to my students, and you guys can tell me if we see this in the, the kind of the Sasquatch world, I suspect we do, but what I used to convey to my students is, uh, you know, it, we're all humans trying to do a human thing, and so ultimately we're selfish too. So it would behoove me to say, you didn't really find anything because I still have a grant that says my stuff is the best. So I can't have you come take the spotlight from me, right? <laughs> and on the other side, it's like, no, 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 no. Even though I found two and a half molars, I absolutely know this is a different, unique and wonderful thing. And I'm going to write it up in nature and I'm going to get all kinds of grants and I'll be able to write it out to retirement. Now that's <laughs> now, very I'm glad you cynical. brought that up because we it's discussed cynical. this earlier about you know the, the scientific community and you know publishing papers and and that whole structure you know when when you went back say a hundred years or more and people in science were actually going out and, and not worrying about you know what their peers had to say as much uh they were actually exploring where today they seem to be kind of entrenched in these uh 
um, you know, in their own beliefs and things and defending those. And Yeah. Well, in, in Darwin's day, it was, it was really about gentleman science, right? So you had the, the kind of the aristocratic uh, classes that, you know, that, that their avocation, you know, was exploration and, you know, and, and, and finding new discoveries. And they would go to their club in London and share it and share papers and things like that. And kind of anyone could do it if you had the time and, and, the, and you know, and you could, you know, get the training and exposure and all that. But now it's very, very entrenched. And the other thing, too, is one discipline does not bleed over into another. I got in trouble in grad school so much because I saw connections in different parts of anthropology and I wanted to do something in all of them. And they kept telling me depth is better than breadth. And I mean, in other words, you know, find find something very, very micro specific to look at and dig into it. And I'm like, and that was really hard for me. And you would think the opposite would be true, that you'd be better... Uh, you know, as a more well-rounded individual than just, you know, picking a narrow uh, perspective and, and running with that. Well, and and I, I truly believe that life, uh, it, you know, it, it's, <laughs> again, I can't help thinking in these terms, but, but to, 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 you know, in anthropology, we talk about generalized versus specialized traits. Your, your feet are very specialized. What can you do with them? You can basically stand and walk. Your feet are, or your hands are very generalized, mm-hmm. and you can do lots of wonderful things with them, right? So why then should I be in an anthropology department where they're telling me to specialize where I'm more limited? <laughs> you know what I mean? It's, just, it's interesting. It make a lot of sense sometimes. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. So, John, were you, were you also saying that maybe there was professional jealousy and squabbling in the academic world? <laughs> oh, my gosh. <laughs> say it ain't so <laughs> oh it's, it's absolutely it is yes it's 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 horrible it makes no sense i mean you know the other thing the other thing too is i always wanted to show my students different videos on things and uh like especially it was especially fun to do this with neanderthals and the more and and, and non-human primates but but i would teach them these different theories about how things come together and how they work and then i would show a video and it was by you know it was on pbs or some some something um and or BBC or whatever, and I would show them the video, and I would then I would say to them, okay, which which theory did that video talk about? And they would say, oh, the multi-regional evolution um, hypothesis. I said that's right. So you know, there's three theories. We're talking about the spread of humans, modern humans. So you know, there's three theories. That video only showed one. But if you weren't in this class, or if you weren't a student of this stuff, you're just Joe on the couch. You would think to yourself, that is the absolute way that all scientists think, but it's not. There's all kinds of competing theories, and you just happen to get whatever one, you know, was on the DVD at the time. It's just, I don't know, it's just interesting. You know, uh, hey, John, have you ever heard of, um, I mean, a great book, one of the best books of all time. Um, it's called the, the Science of Structural Revolution, I think it's, it's called, but um, by um, Thomas Kuhn. And, yeah. um, and any, anyways, look, he, he goes through the entire history of, uh, you know, science, and he says that, hey, you know, there are all these, uh, you know, like movements or revolutions that take place, and they all have different time periods. And it's like, you know, for, for a long time, people thought that the, wor- the world was, uh, you know, flat. Um, everybody thought the world was flat and everything. And um, he goes through and he, he kind of explains how there is just this entire revolution that goes on in science and it's continuing um 
And um, so, so that book, by the way, is, is the structure of scientific revolutions, I think it's called. Uh, Tom can look that up right now. <laughs> but um, yeah, very, 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 very interesting about how our whole time period changes based on our beliefs, and um, just, just very, very fascinating. Yeah, we. Uh, it's funny because we be uh, academics. We become like super educated, and and we think we're super smart, and. The funny thing is, we just, the minute that happens, we stop thinking, right? We we got it figured out, and now we're done. We're done figuring it out. Yeah. And now we're going to spend the rest of our lives showing that we figured it out. Um, but anytime new information comes, you know, it's like, I, again, I used to tell my students when we were talking about, um, uh, you know, I think uh, the first couple weeks of, the, or one week of the class, I used to talk about uh, religion versus evolution and so on. And, and I would say, look, you, you know, here are, the, here are these fossils. You know, you you know, I'm showing you a bunch of different you know skulls from different things, also good scenes or whatever. I say, look, you can you can choose not to deal with it, and that's fine. You could do that, but the one thing you can't do is say it's not there, right? It's there, so either deal with it or don't do it. Don't deal with it, but don't say it's not there. And so scientists do the same thing, right? Where if if yeah. something runs counter to what we feel or what what you know what we what we've invested ourselves into, we just we just pretend it's not there. Or we get into the scrap. When I wrote my master's thesis, I mean, most of it was just me. <laughs> I spent a lot of time reading, <laughs> reading angry letters in journal article in the backs of journals about how so and so is a dumb dumb and somebody shouldn't have gotten their degree and all kinds of stuff. It's like, oh my gosh! You know, you know, it's it's it, that that's so that's so true. Um, because like, hey, listen, I, I did my master's thesis on Martin Scorsese, and for a long time, people thought, oh well, uh, he's never going to win an Oscar and blah blah blah. And now. He's being praised at the last Oscars, you know. Um. You know, this this always makes me, this kind of discussion makes me think of something Rene Hidden used to say. And I've said it before, but it always cracks me up. Uh, he would say, you know, if somebody approached him and said they had a PhD, he'd say, what's the prognosis? And, they, and they'd look at him confused. And they'd say, what do you mean? And he, and he kind of, he always had this innocent look that he would get all of a sudden. And he'd say, well, I thought they were telling me they had an incurable brain disease. <laughs> that's true that's true yeah it is i mean look i mean i i I love the whole academic thing i just absolutely ate it up but but i mean and again i've just born a super cynical dude and it's unfortunate but i just i i just saw so much absolute dug in you know absolutely invested not going to hear anybody else's opinion and in fact you're kind of I mean, think about it. If you're if you're in the university, it's it literally is publisher parish, right? So you got to get your tenure. You got to publish. Well, if you're going to publish, you got to you got to find things that are interesting. So you're just you're digging crap out and and presenting it as the most golden stuff ever been found. And they're peer reviewed. Um, that's <laughs> so. If they don't, if no other people don't like what you wrote, you're out. <laughs> that's exactly right. It's such a game. Such a game. Anyway. You, know, you know, when you talked about different disciplines, you know, and not interacting, that made me think, too. You know, we have our good friend, Tony, who's a, uh, a retired 40-year litigator and now a retired judge. And he and I, we talked about this, you know, but we've had him on the show a couple of times and he's, uh, you know, periodic, like, like you, somebody we bring up periodically. But he had a great point. He said, you know, when it comes to, you know, science, they... We'll look at all the things that are collected in this subject, and and one of the things are like the, you know, the thousands of 
eyewitness reports and footprints and all these things and dismiss it like it doesn't exist. He said in, in a court of law, all of that stuff is absolutely admissible. You know, it's actual legal evidence. So yep. I guess it's a matter of perspective at that point. Right. Yeah, I mean, it, it really, really is. I mean, lots of lots of cases are made based on based on witness accounts. Yeah, we watch a lot of Dateline, and we see all these, you know, people being convicted for life life sentences on some pretty flimsy evidence. <laughs> and I'm thinking, good lord, you know, with all the stuff I know, all the stuff I have myself would probably prove the things are real in a, in a court case. But um, it's just sort of the existence we have at the moment. Yeah, yeah, and that was a real eye opener for me being in the law enforcement world because I did that too for a long time, and so um, seeing prosecutors just absolutely entrenched on one theory. I had one prosecutor that um, I I I was an expert witness for her for you know probably well many homicide cases, and and finally I was on one case I was called by the defense, and she her first uh, her first job was to try to disqualify me as the witness and i had told her i said hey look if you disqualify me as a witness that's going to nullify every case i ever testified on for you you know it's just it, it just it it there's even this you know even in um in you would think that in legal proceedings where people's lives are on the line you wouldn't have this kind of uh bias and pride and just gotta win kind of at all costs thing but it just it, you do I think it's virtually impossible to remove that part of ourselves from any endeavor we're in. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. You know, there's a there's an 18th century philosopher who said, I, I love this quote. He goes, all truth passes through three stages. You guys may have heard this. The first, it, at first it's ridiculed. Secondly, it's violently opposed. And third, it's accepted as being self-evident. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> he, he, you know, uh, Will and, and John, just to kind of uh, switch topics a, a tad, um, I, w- I was just curious about the width of their chest, um, these creatures, because I think that, Will, you, you said that they have maybe like four feet between uh, shoulder to shoulder. Well, um, now that's subjective. It depends on the individual you're seeing and, and the person's perception of that. But I was a pretty good judge at the time, you know, helping my dad butcher. And and I was in FFA doing judging contests and things. So I got a pretty good eye for size and weight. Uh, what was standing in front of me was was a good four to five feet across the shoulders. And, wow. and the thickness of it from the front of its chest to its back would have been close to three feet. It was massive. Wow. And, and, and was it kind of like similar to uh, Patty? Or, uh... It was very similar. The weight distribution was a little bit different. It was, uh, I'm sure it was a male because the, the center of gravity was up in the chest. But did it, did it have uh, hair all across its, its chest? or? Uh... Oh, yeah. It was fully covered in hair. Oh, okay. Interesting. And, and uh, John, have you heard that too with um, some of the sightings that uh, you've heard about? Um, are are, are the, the width of the shoulders about the same? Or Yeah, I mean, I think there's it's proportional, right? So, I mean, I think if, you, if, you ha- if you're talking about something eight or nine feet tall with, you know, with barrel, barrel chested and muscular, that I think that's, you would have to have, you know, the, 
the the breadth of the chest be you know in that range yeah And, and will um, just just with like other sightings that you've heard about, uh, pretty much the same or? Uh, yeah, they're pretty universal. I mean, we get some variations, of course, like John mentioned, and I totally agree with that. We know of, uh, you know, there are quite a number of variations, actually slight variations, depending on their um, how they've adapted to certain areas and regions of the continent. So uh, you know, you would expect that. Yeah. Yeah. But proportionally, they're you know, they're generally similar. Yeah. You know, that brings up a kind of an interesting question because there's we know there's at least four different types, maybe five, um, but they don't inter they don't really interbreed, do they? So you have they retain those whatever makes them distinct as a type one, two, or three, or four, right? I mean, you're not going to have a type one interbreeding with a type four type yeah three we'll type see, two they've got enough space between them you know in terms of geography and and there's um you know the various regions you know in other words on the west coast you're a lot of mountains uh you get a little further east it's flat and so on so they they've had some adaptations to those locations uh two examples are ones i use a lot are the ones right here on the west coast in the mountains that are very muscular, very heavily built, and they're they're they've adapted to that mountainous terrain. You get a little further east where it's flatter, and they're not quite as bulky. Um, you know, better adapted for you know open country running and things like that. So there's there's some minor variations you know with those adaptations. Well, Willie, here's a question that I have too. Do you think that um in terms of the types, uh, you, you just said that they don't kind of interbreed, but do they get along with each other? Um, like, if, 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 for example, if, if a type one comes across a, a type two family, would they get along or, or no? Well, here's what we hear. You know, with people, I haven't seen, you know, two different variations encounter one another the ranges are fairly large and they do overlap sometimes um i think most of the time they're just not in the same area at the same times but if they are and we've heard this okay. a few times uh there'll be a lot of lot of vocalization going on and you see that with oh, other well, groups as well interesting uh, we yeah. we have that encounter with that tammy talked about that's yes. kind of kind of humorous <laughs> yeah well I'll, I'll get to that um but typically, now with the vocalizations, you get a lot of vocals going on between individuals in the two groups, uh, and and then the dominant alpha will do a vocal, usually a type of roar, and that settles the issue. And the two groups will pass each other quietly, uh, so there isn't isn't really an altercation. Right okay. now, in that particular case you mentioned with Tammy, there there were two variations. Uh, there was one that was very you know, for lack of a better term, Patterson-esque looking. Uh, and these other, I think it was three individuals, came along. The first one was sitting down. Um, I, I can't remember what it was doing. Apparently not a lot. Um, and the other ones apparently caught wind of the first individual being there. Uh, and the first individual got what she said was a rather disgusted look on its face. And the other three abruptly turned around and went back the direction they came. Uh, so I would imagine they 
they don't have a lot of interaction with one another. And if they do, there's, right. you know, displays yeah. and things uh, that'll keep them from having any problems. Yeah, yeah. Probably not a fr- friendly encounter. <laughs> well, I mean, you know, it is what it is in nature because you're you have uh, resources and things to, uh, you know, protect. Yeah, and they are territorial, so. Yeah. Well, fellas, any more questions or? Uh, no, I just just want to thank John for for coming on. I mean, excellent conversation. John, is there awesome. anything you wanted to bring up or? Uh, no, that was it. <clears throat> Sorry. <laughs> Actually, I was asking uh, John. Did you have anything you wanted yeah. to, uh, to bring up or? Um. No, no, not really. I just appreciate the opportunity to, to kind of talk about this stuff. It's interesting, and, and uh, it's great to talk with you guys. Yeah, very, very interesting. Yeah, absolutely. We we always love having you on because, uh, you know, it's it's a rare treat to have a, a professional that can speak about parts of this issue that, uh, you know, others, you know, speculate, but you're coming from science, so much appreciated. Yeah, there's a, sure, there's a lot that I can't speak to, but what I can, I, I enjoy doing, so I appreciate the opportunity. All right, my friend. Well, listen, we will have you back again soon, and and I'll I'll be talking to you privately about something that we're working on. So uh, we'll do that a little later. But uh, thanks again for joining us, and uh, everyone, stay tuned for the next segment. In Bigfoot history, Washington State, Cowlitz River, Fall of 1917. The April 1969 issue of the Bigfoot Bulletin, published by George Haas of Oakland, California, carried a report by Albert M. Fletcher of Oakland, who said that when he was 17, he worked in a lumber camp on the Cowlitz River in southwestern Washington. One evening, while walking down a logging road on his way to the dance, he had a feeling he was being followed, so ducked behind a tree. Almost immediately, a very large, man-like creature about six and a half or seven feet tall came into view. It was walking on its hind legs, was covered with dark hair, and had a bearded face, large chest, and so far as I could see, it was not wearing clothes of any kind. Startled, I let out a yell of alarm, and the creature instantly turned and ran off into the woods, still on its hind legs. Mr. Fletcher told of his experience, and found that some of his co-workers had seen the same thing. Welcome. This is a series of stories being brought to you by William Jevning and being narrated by Jim Sower. Story number one, Australia, Bigfoot spotted in bush near Sydney, April 15, 2009. Australian News, April 2009, two backpackers on a year-long trip around Australia got the fright of their life last week while they were out trekking in the bushland in the vicinity of the township of Lura, not far from the well-known Katoomba landmark, the Three Sisters. It was early evening, and by the ladies' own admission, it was a bit late to be by themselves in the bush. Ingrid Schoen, 23, of Germany, and Addie Hansen, 22, of France, decided to head back into town when they heard the breaking of branches and loud footsteps heading towards them. 
Ingrid turned on her torch to light the track in front of them, and at this point they both claimed to have seen what they now describe as Bigfoot charge away into the distance. Admittedly, we did not get a close look, but we think that what we saw looked like the American Bigfoot, basically covered in hair and about two meters tall. It definitely had no clothes on and was not human. Ingrid told all-news web reporter Jaden Cassidy, We were petrified and almost lost our way back in our nervous state, Ingrid commented. The Blue Mountains is believed to be the home of a creature known as the Yowie, basically Australia's version of Bigfoot or the Yeti. There have been many recent sightings there. Prior to the arrival of Europeans, local Aboriginal tribes were certain of its existence. Aboriginal communities still living in the Blue Mountains, along with some other locals, continue to believe that the Yowie might be out there in the vast expanses of Australia's Great Dividing Range. This is the end of the first story. Story number two. BBC's Online. So Weird, Lionel's Guide. The Ape Type. They're all big, they're all hairy, they're all colossal cocktails of man, ape, bear, and occasionally goat, but they're all over the world. Yeti in the Himalayas, Sasquatch and Bigfoot in North America, Yaren in China, Nguoi Rung in Vietnam, and the Yowie in Australia. Most of the time they're more frightened by the spotters, but they're not always harmless. An adventurer named Bauman was working as a trapper with a friend in the Wisdom River area in Montana. One night, when Bauman got back to camp, he found his friend dead. There were huge bite marks on the body, and the man's neck had been snapped by something with far more than normal human strength. A few days before the tragedy, they had both seen a strange humanoid creature, which they reckoned was about seven feet tall and this story was reported by President Roosevelt, so it must be true. American presidents don't lie, do they? In 1924, Al Ostman claimed to have been abducted by a whole tribe of Sasquatch. He was asleep in his sleeping bag when one of them picked him up like a rag doll and carried him away. As the creatures made no attempt to harm him, Ostman, who always kept a loaded rifle by his side when he was out alone in the wilds, did not wish to harm them. He finally got away by giving snuff to their leader and running away while the Sasquatch chief was sneezing uncontrollably. Many disturbing reports of the Yeti, or Abominable Snowman, a close cousin to Sasquatch and Bigfoot, have come in over the years from the Himalayas. In 1974, on a plateau 14,000 feet up near Mount Everest, 19-year-old Lakpa Sherpani was knocked unconscious as she tried unsuccessfully to defend her yaks from a yeti which killed several of them by twisting their horns until their necks were broken. This story comes to us from BBC Online. The end of story number two. Story number three. Alaska Magazine, September 1998. Volume 64, Number 7 Nathan, the Brushman By Velma Wallace 
Sasquatch, or something like it, appears in the legends of the northern Athabascan Gwich'in people as Natan, the brushman. Is he a myth, a monster, or a lonely man? The Natan was held in fear and admiration, although none could swear he ever actually saw one. If someone dared say that they did, people laughed, yet some believed. It is said that the Natan, also called brushmen, were men who were ostracized from the group for disobeying tribal rules. The rules of the wandering Gwich'in bands were simple and stern because survival was their main concern. The rules helped the people to survive their harsh environment, but they also were social requirements meant to keep peace. Some men, and occasionally women, did not abide by the rules, so the band leaders would ask the person to leave. The condemned person usually tried to prove he could survive without the group, but isolation taught otherwise. Physically, survival was possible. Emotionally, the human craved companionship. The rejected person would find himself slipping into the guise of a Natan. He would hover behind bushes, spying on people. If he became lonely, he tried to kidnap a woman and sometimes succeeded. Others saw brushmen as non-human, but with human appearances and magical powers. For instance, the brushman possesses the ability to use mind power to lull you to sleep and then steal your loved one. Even after contact with Western culture, the Gwich'in people believe that the brushman still exists. In the late 1800s, an infant was said to have been stolen by a Natan and later returned. Although the Natan was feared, he also was romanticized. As a teenager, my mother often wished that she were stolen by a Natan. My husband told of a time when he hunted above the mountains in Chandelar country, and large, dark, and dressed in skins, uh, this thing appeared from the woods and knelt down to drink water from a stream. Geoffrey called out to him, wanting to believe he was just another hunter, the startled man looked up and then ran away. Jeffrey told others, and they laughed, for what was the typical response to anyone who said that they saw a Natan? Despite people's skepticism, not long ago a sensible couple traveling down the Porcupine River spotted a man walking alongside the beach. When he heard their motor, the man disappeared into the willows. The couple searched the area, but found only moccasin tracks. Later that fall, in Fort Yukon, meat and fish that hung on drying racks were missing. People said it couldn't have been dogs because there would have been tracks. And camp robbers, gray jays, blue jays, and stellar jays, always leave a mess. Again, even in modern times, the myth of the brush man sends excitement through the heart of small Alaskan communities. Perhaps the spirits of those long-ostracized and rebellious individuals still do roam the land, searching for food and companionship. Copyright, Alaska Magazine, September 1998, Volume 64, Number 7. That is the end of Story Number 3. The Legend of Ohio's Orange-Eyed Creature, 1959. Old Orange Eyes was allegedly an 11-foot-tall, 1,000-pound Bigfoot creature 
that is said to live in central Ohio, on a lonely road called Lover's Lane where it stalked teenagers. The orange-eyes creature first gained notice on March 28th, 1959, when three teenagers observed a huge, hairy, orange monster rise from a ground fog at Charles Mill Reservoir, near Mansfield. Then, four years later, the beast appeared again, and this time it was witnessed by several people. Scientists were not sure where this creature lived, but it is assumed that the beast might have lived in a tunnel in Cleveland's Riverside, where it lived in peace for more than 25 years. Then, suddenly, in the 1940s and 1960s, highway construction destroyed the tunnel that Orange Eyes was alleged to be living in, forcing the creature to live in a stretch of forest behind the Cleveland Zoo. Finally, a group of teenagers invaded the creature's habitat on April 22, 1968, and chased the creature armed with baseball bats, flashlights, and ropes, and went into the forest to try to capture and kill the creature, but they found no sign of the beast. June 1991, Old Orange Eyes appeared again, and this time the beast ran past two people fishing near Willis Creek, scaring the daylights out of them before disappearing. It was said the way to find this creature was on Ruggles Road near Blue Ridge, and if the creature was there, it would appear curious. Witnesses of the orange-eyed creature say that there is no monster, just some crazy hermit or trademark feature by nailing two round orange bike reflectors to a stick, or teenagers using Christmas tree lights, flashlights to frighten one another. Courtesy, Andy Ramirez, Saturday, June 23, 2001, 10.38 a.m. This sounds like an urban legend, and it may also remind you of the Big Head Report from Richland County, Ohio, Vintage, 1978. This is the end of story number four. Story number five. Biddeford, York County, Maine, 1951. Suddenly, there he was, less than 15 feet in front of me. I am a 73-year-old man, and when I was 13 years old, I was on a holiday with my parents in Biddeford, Maine. It was a sunny, chilly day in April. I told my parents I was going for a walk along an estuary leading out to the ocean. When I came close to the flowing, chilly water, I saw a winding stream with sandbanks rising five feet in front of me. As I climbed up on one bank to look at the water a few feet in front of me, I saw a figure floating on his back, coming in with the tide. I'd say we spotted each other at about the same time, so I had just stepped up onto this dune from the land side. It was four or five steps, and I was on top of the dune, looked down at the water, and there he was, right in front of me. I can easily think about that moment, and again, I had no idea what I was looking at. I could see him so clearly, even his hairs as they swirled around his body. Well, mind you, at this time of my life, I had never heard of Yetis, Bigfoot, or never read about them. I never knew they existed in my thirteen years of age. Uh, this figure had the shape of a man with grayish hair 
and a hairless, pinkish to reddish face with no hair on it. Although I had read about Bigfoot through those years, I never put the two together. I guess one reason was that this guy had grayish-white hair, and I guess I didn't really think he was a Bigfoot. This guy had no breasts that I could see. Only while reading about Bigfoot recently did I notice that an occasional you'd see a whitish-gray one that would appear. So I got excited, and I had to write about it. The rest of his body had hair which moved as the water washed around him. He was on his back and floating in head first. He was no more than twelve to fifteen feet from me. I didn't move one bit as I gazed at him. His arms were to his side, and he lay motionless, but the incoming water was moving him along this creek at about four miles an hour. His body was barely awash, meaning that he was floating on top of the water with about half an inch of water covering his body, except for his pinkish, reddish face, which floated out of the water, I'd say from the front of where his ears should be to the front of his face. His nose, eyes, and mouth were out of the water. His facial skin looked wrinkly, not a lot, but he had mostly deep wrinkles on his face. Another thing about his face, the skin was bare, not even a whisker, no hair at all on his face. One more thing, the amount of his facial reddishness was like a sunburnt man. He showed no facial expression. Only his eyes moved over to me, and that was a little scary to me, but I stood there and stared back at him. I don't think I shared any expression. About the hair, it was about six to eight inches long and loosely floated around his body. It looked like it was the consistency or thickness of a golden retriever dog not thick and matted like other Bigfoot reports that I've read. I did notice his knees, hairy, slightly bent up, and still just below the water. While I was watching him, I saw no effort to move his hands or arms. He easily drifted in without any body, arm, or hand movement that I noticed. I'll never forget how I felt during the brief time that I saw him. It was a deep soul connection that overcame me, I felt peaceful and calm during the whole time. I think I said this guy was about twelve feet from me, maybe even a little closer. I want to go back to where I saw him some day in hopes of connecting with him or his children. I thought it would be hard for me to walk down the little dune and follow him, and I don't think I would have since the dune led into the water, and I thought I would have gotten wet. Besides, I was so startled I could only look at him. Having never heard of these creatures, I ran through my mind every creature I had ever seen, and this didn't exist in my vocabulary of known animals. I was always interested in animals. I never ever saw anything like this. As I was gazing at him, he looked up at me, and we had an eye-to-eye -eye connection, which only lasted a few seconds. I can't say for sure, but I think his eyes were grayish-blue in color, he felt kindly to me, not startled, and I wasn't either. I will never forget this moment, and it's clear as a bell to me after sixty-three years. I ran home to my parents, who were in a house along the beach, and excitedly told them what I had seen. Well, they didn't pay much attention to me and thought I had seen a seal or a walrus or some other sea animal. I never thought much about it 
and kind of forgot it after many years. Later, I began to hear and read about Bigfoot and never put what I saw together. The reason was that all reports I have read these creatures were never grayish-white, and they weren't very tall. This guy was only about six feet in length, no more, but finally, about ten years ago, I realized that this might have been a yeti. What else could it be? I feel a deep connection to the Bigfoot, and my experience will always be with me. I keep my sighting almost to myself, but though the, what I saw might help in some small way, I, uh, you know, tell others to help understand what's going on, you may publish this and use as you wish. You may use my first name, but please keep my contact information private. B.J. from Maine. Sunday, March 13th, 2011. That's the end of story number four. Thank you for listening. Welcome. This is a collection of five stories being brought to you by William Jevning and being narrated by me, Jim Sower. Story number one. Bigfoot watches snowmobilers in Gifford Pinchot National Forest. This happened, oh, roughly 1995 or so. The guy wasn't a researcher, just an ardent dyed-in-the-wool snowmobiler. This fellow's name was Garcia, and he lived in Beaverton, Oregon, an area near Portland. Seems he and some of his buddies were up in the Gifford Pinchot National Forest doing what snowmobilers do, playing chase, trying to ditch or lose your chasers. Garcia was way out in front of his pursuers trying to lose them, he turned up a spur road into an untouched snow area, thinking his buddies would miss where he turned. Well, this spur only went about 200 yards into an old landing site, with the road ending right at the timber's edge. Garcia's plan was to go up into the old unit, get out of sight of the main road, make a big swing through the old unit, then when his buddies passed, he planned to come down and get in behind them before they noticed. Wrong. It didn't work out that way. When he tore up into the unit and started to make his turn at the old landing, standing at the end of the road, just outside the timber, was a large Bigfoot, watching him. Garcia panicked, and in his fright he flopped his snowmobile. In his panicked state, between trying to right his ride and watch his observer, who was just standing watching this scared human floundering around in the snow, but must have been quite a sight to behold. Anyway, when the Bigfoot had seen enough, it just turned and walked back into the timber, much to Garcia's relief. He finally got his snowmobile back onto its bottom side down and met up with his buddies and told them the story, which they checked out without Garcia. For his part, Garcia went back to the parking area, loaded up, went home and sold his outfit, and moved back to California. After I heard about this from a neighbor of Garcia's, I told Peter Byrne, and at Peter B.'s request, I tried to get in contact with Garcia, but he was long gone, and where in California he went wasn't known. 
this guy was scared half out of his skin. His neighbor was a landscape contractor I knew, and he told me about Garcia's adventure a year or two after it had happened. He said after Garcia got back, sold his outfit, and moved, he was never the same, and couldn't get out of the Northwest quick enough. Too bad more retransplant Californians don't have a similar experience. Maybe we could lose or slow down this rapid growth we're staggering under. LOL. Cliff Johnson, Oregon City. Oregon. Ole Jeep. Wednesday, January 18th, 2006. And that's the end of story number one. Story number two. A 1970s Sasquatch story in Georgia by Wayne Ford, Oconee County, Georgia. Along the Flint River in the vicinity of the central Georgia city of Griffin is the location of one of Georgia's most publicized pieces of Sasquatch evidence. Along the Flint River in the vicinity of the central Georgia city of Griffin is the location of one of Georgia's most publicized pieces of Sasquatch evidence, the cast of a track with dermal ridges that supposedly indicate the existence of an unknown primate. That 17.5-inch print was cast in 1997 by a sheriff's deputy. But 20 years earlier, and within a few miles of this place, a young teenager had a fleeting but frightening encounter with an animal that was out of the realm of anything he had considered existed. Today, Jeff Scott is trying to come to terms with what he saw that day on the banks of the Flint River. He searches through the vast amount of Bigfoot information available on the Internet, and he returned to the location of his sighting. He is no longer embarrassed by the fact that he saw something that is cataloged by the general public as strange or fanciful. Jeff Scott's search for answers began in 2008, during the time of a Ballyhooed hoax in Georgia when two men, one a certified policeman, claimed on national TV that they had the body of a Bigfoot. It was a lie, but Scott says what he saw was real. Back in 2008 when they said they had a corpse of Bigfoot, you remember the hoax? Well, I went back down there, he said, in July during the telephone interview from his home in Griffin. Based on what he has learned by studying reports, Scott, now 49, said he is certain he has found strong evidence of the creature still in that area. Scott's personal sightings go back more than three decades. Me and my cousin were down on a river bank, he recalled. I was 17 years old when it happened, and I wasn't even thinking about Bigfoot back in those days. My cousin was down on the bank fishing, and I said, Russell, come on up. Let's go around this bend and fish here for a while. He didn't go. Lord knows I went up around the river bend and throwed my poles out, and I was sitting there by myself. I wasn't talking, just being extremely quiet when I heard something way off in the distance across from me. The river is real narrow up there, too, he said. As he sat fishing, Scott said the sound that he heard far off in the forest sounded like limbs popping. I didn't pay no attention to it, or, and it started getting louder, and I thought it must be a 
cow or something coming down to the river to get some water. He got closer and closer, and a fear came over me. I started hearing big, huge limbs snapping and popping. It was frightening. I knew right off the bat there ain't nobody in the world can make that kind of noise. Scott said he was alarmed, and his sense of flight set in, but he sat still. He said the bushes and vines on the opposite side of the river were moving, and he knew that whatever he had heard was near the river. About that time, that thing came out. With its arms, it parted the vines, and I saw it walking. It was just humongous how big it was. Solid black hair and shiny. I never saw its face. I saw it from the side. I saw its legs plain as day, arms and head, everything from the side. If I hollered at it, it would have instinctively turned and looked at me, but I didn't do that. I was so scared, he said. He got up hollering and running back to Russell. I'd never been so scared in my life, he said. Scott remembered he was in a near state of panic when he reached his cousin. I was shaking so bad. He tried to get me to my senses, I said. Man, we need to get the hell out of here, Scott said, adding. He saw the fear in my eyes. They left, and more than thirty years would pass before Scott had the desire to return to this location and stand where he had seen the creature. To this day, the only thing I regret about it is I was too scared to go back down there and see that devastation of limbs that thing had snapped. I know the footprints would have been there, he said. The sense of fear Scott experienced that day was profound. The fear overcame me that this thing could kill me, Mankind has never captured something like that. The fear in me was indescribable, he said. Today, Scott does not harbor that same fear that overcame him as a teenager. He doesn't believe these things, unknown creatures, will kill unnecessarily. He has gone to spots on the Flint River on a number of occasions to look and to listen. I'm trying not to carry a gun down there with me, but it's hard I carry bear spray and a knife, he said, adding, I've only been back to that same spot where I saw it one time. He and his cousin returned at his request. I found the spot again right off the bat after thirty-three years. When I stood at the exact spot, I saw that thing. I'm serious as a heart attack. I felt as if something was watching me. He said he turned to his cousin as they stood on the river bank. Russell, you didn't see what I saw standing here thirty-three years ago. It was the scariest thing in my life, he said, adding, he believes me because he saw the fear in my eyes that day. Scott said he talked about this sighting to only a few people. Nobody knows what I saw, only a handful of people, he said. When he read about the casting of the footprint, now called Elkins Creek cast, he knew it was close to where he had had his sighting, and to him it was a confirmation that what he saw still roams those forests in the Flint River. Twenty years later, they took castings of a footprint, he said, and more than thirty years later, he wants to understand what he saw. Wayne Ford is a journalist in Georgia who is researching the mystery. 
This is the end of story number two. Story number three. Adams County, Idaho, October 2009, and several other incidences in the same county. 2009 was the third year that I have been able to spend the whole hunting season in the mountains. I retired in October 2007. I pulled my camp trailer up at the end of September and set it up for 36 days of camping, hunting, and sitting around the campfire enjoying the outdoors. I spent a lot of time camping and hunting by myself, everyone else is still working, and riding my ATV on the few old logging roads that are still open to four-wheelers. At 12.24 a.m. on the seventh night, something woke me up and I sat up in bed. A minute or so later, the rear end of my camp trailer started rocking back and forth. All the stabilizer jacks were down, and the trailer was solid, so whatever it was that was pushing on my trailer was very strong. The fully loaded trailer weighed in at more than 5,500 pounds, and whatever was moving it was not making any noise while it rocked. My first thought was a bear, a really big bear. I grabbed my shotgun and put a shell in and sat and waited for a few seconds. The trailer continued to rock back and forth, so I grabbed the air horn that was sitting on the table and gave it several blasts. That did not stop it, so I got the keys to my truck and pushed the panic button, setting the horn blaring. This stopped whatever it was, and all was quiet for five minutes. I sat there with the shotgun in my hands, listening for any sound. There was no sound, just total quiet. I had convinced myself that it was just a bear when this god-awful sound came from the ridge behind the trailer. It started off like a whistle, turning into a horse whinny, and then going into a very loud howl and finished off with a growl. All of these sounds were run together with no pause in between them. It lasted maybe ten, fifteen seconds, and then all went quiet. Damnedest sound I ever heard scared the hell out of me. I got dressed and sat there in the dark the rest of the night, shotgun in hand. I have never had anything affect me like that before. After it was completely daylight, I went out to look at the back side of the trailer and to see if there were any tracks on the ground. There were not any dents in the trailer or any tracks on the ground. There should have been tracks because the ground was kind of soft and out of habit I had raked all the pine needles and forest duff away from the trailer leaving just dirt and grass. This happened on October 5th. 2009 at 12.24 a.m. Need to mention here that a 240-pound friend drove into my camp while I was still outside checking for tracks and looking for any damage to my trailer. He wanted to know what I was doing, so I told him the events of the past eight hours. I also went back inside and had him push on the trailer to see if he could rock it back and forth. The best he could do was to give it a jolt by throwing a shoulder into it. He could not make it rock in the smooth motion that had occurred the night before. This particular event is what finally gave me the incentive to file a report. 
and largely because it is the first time I cannot affix any logical, rational explanation that would allow me to forget that it happened. There have been seven or so other odd happenings over the past 12 to 14 years that have taken place within a six-mile stretch of this road involving six people. Two of those events involved the friend I mentioned earlier, with both ending in him being chased off the mountain. Event 1. The first happened when he was walking out on an old skid road very late in the day, after an afternoon deer hunt. He said he could hear something keeping pace with him higher up on the hill, and it followed him for about a mile or so, making sounds that he had never heard before. Event number two. The second time was five to six years later, and in the summer, he had just finished cutting up a truckload of firewood and was taking a breather before loading it when he heard the same sound as before. The sound was quite a ways off, but kept getting closer, so this time he decided that he would sit tight and see exactly what it was. He had a three fifty-seven Magnum revolver with him, and he just stood there waiting. After some time of listening to this sound, and it was getting closer and closer, he again let discretion be the better part of valor, and jumped in his truck and left, leaving the wood he had just cut laying there on the ground. Event number three. An old hunting partner of his was chased back into his camp trailer early one morning by something that made threatening sounds toward him in the dark. He said he had never heard anything like that before, and he is also a lifelong hunter. Event four. An associate that worked on one of our mills said his wife saw a tall, strange-looking thing walking towards their campsite while he was out hunting. It turned and went into the forest before she could get a really good look at the face, but she said it was very tall and was dark in color from head to foot and not carrying a rifle. Event 5. My son said he saw several barefoot human-looking tracks, but they were large and they were along the trail on the top of the ridge that overlooked the area where my friend left the truck. Event 5. My son said he saw several footprints, human-looking ones, but large footprints along the trail of the top of the ridge that overlooked the area where my friend had left the truckload of firewood on the ground. Event 6. My brother and I were camped on a point just a few miles down the road from this year's incident back in 1997 or 98. It was just after dark, and we were sitting by the campfire when across the creek and way up the ridge we heard this god-awful scream-slash-howl it was so loud that it felt like it shook my shirt sleeves. After a few minutes of trying to rationalize what could have made that sound and not coming up with anything, he left and went into his trailer for the night. I put the fire to bed, and then I went into my trailer for the night. No brave people here, either. Keep in mind that we have been lifelong hunters, and he was in his sixties then, and I was in my fifties. Event number seven. Two other occasions in previous years involved knocking or tapping on the side of my trailer. One happened at two o'clock in the morning, and a few years later it happened again at three o'clock in the morning. On both occasions, there were no other camps within a mile or two in either direction on this road. 
No other noise was heard other than the three or four raps on the side of the trailer on both those occasions. My campsites are well off the Forest Service Road, with the exception of one that's about 150 yards from the road. My best guess about the chronology of these events? Well, the first one, my friend walking out the skid road was mm, 96 to 97. Um, second one, my the mill employee's wife was around 96 to 98. The third one, about my brother and me, was 97 to 98. The one about my son was 98 to 99. The fifth one, about friend's old hunting partner, I was about 2,000. The sixth event was my friend cutting wood, that was 2002. The seventh, knocking or rapping on my trailer at night at 2 o'clock and then again at 3 o'clock in the morning was 2005 and 2008. And the eighth, the one about the trailer rocking back and forth, that was 2009. Other incidences in the past 30 years of hunting in this area. One, very bad smell going out an old skid road before daylight. Nothing there when we're coming back out. This happened several times, and always in the same area of the skid road at the bottom of a draw where my brother and I heard the scream, howl, in 97 or 98. Two, small rocks were thrown at my son while we were sitting on the edge of our favorite ridge, two ridges past the end of the skid road mentioned above. Three, animal and bird sounds going in another skid road, and totally quiet when coming back out. This happened more than just once on this skid road. Number four, a stick structure we found that was built off of FRS number 624 on the side road. Number five, my son rolled a large rock down into a large bowl, five to seven hundred yards wide, just before dark, making a lot of noise intending to scare out an elk, but instead... A very tall, solid, dark figure stepped out from behind a tree across the bowl from us, and after a few seconds, stepped back behind the tree again. My son rolled another rock, and the figure stepped out again for a few seconds. It then headed off away from the road as it was getting dark, walking on two legs. I watched this thing through a small pair of binoculars, and it was uniform in color, top to bottom, and was not carrying a rifle. This happened 50 to 55 miles away from the area mentioned for all the other happenings. That's the end of story number three. Story number four. Albany County near Laramie, Wyoming, 2001. Snowy Range Mountains. I definitely want to share this with you. This was in the Snowy Mountain Range near Laramie, Wyoming, July of 2001 at about 9.30 a.m., Albany County, by the way. I've been on this website reading up on stories from all over the country that people have submitted of Bigfoot sightings that they've experienced. As I read them, I realize how shockingly close they are to what I saw. When I was a sophomore in high school, my mom was dating a man named Scott. He had a four-wheeler and we'd always go camping. We went to the Snowy Range Mountain Range near Laramie, Wyoming, and camped up there one weekend. Scott and his buddies were dredging for gold, and my buddy Keith and I, along with my brother, 
were riding the four-wheeler around having a good time. I went out on a solo run, and that's when I experienced my sighting. Now, what you have to understand is the area we were in was pretty hard to get lost in. A huge, incredibly wide dirt road that led from our camp to a massive meadow that led down off the mountain. In the other direction, about 100 yards or so down the dirt road, was the creek in which the guys were dredging. The main road leads you everywhere. As I rode past the creek, I saw another dirt road leading into the woods. I figured I'd explore a little, so I went in there. As I followed the road, I could see a few deer skipping around. The area was full of trees, but plenty of sunlight got through, and the area was actually very pleasant. Eventually, the road narrowed and gradually disappeared, and the trees became closer together. The area off in that direction was clearly still rather unexplored, and I didn't feel like getting lost in there. As I turned the four-wheeler around, I was met with an incredible sight. A pretty small black bear had wandered out of the woods and walked right up to me. I braced myself for the worst, but instead, the poor guy was shaking. He came right up to me and pressed his body up against the four-wheeler. He didn't look like he was very old. I was genuinely worried about him when all of a sudden, what I figured to be his mother charged out of the woods about twenty feet to my left. She ran right up to me, and the young bear looked at me and quickly nudged the little bear away from me. She looked at me again, and there was something about the look in her eyes. They wandered off, and I sat there wondering what the heck just happened. I swear I'm not making this up. Why didn't the mother bear attack me? Why was the mother bear not acting defensive around her cub? And then I heard it. It was the most terrifying scream I've ever heard. It started low, like a really deep lion's roar, as it grew in intensity, it sounded like a lion mixed with a low bass sound that oscillated a bit. The louder it got, it became higher pitched until it sounded like a woman screaming in absolute terror. It continued for about six seconds or so. It sounded like a woman was being slaughtered out in those woods, but yet it had an inhuman shriek to it as well. I wasted no time in getting out of that area. I rode down the main road, and I passed the guys that were in the creek. I stopped and just looked at them. They were standing there looking around and asked me if I was messing around making that scream. I said I wasn't, and then we saw the two black bears crossing the creek a little ways down. You could tell they were in a hurry. The guys shrugged and went back to dredging. I rode down the main road and out into the clearing that led out of the mountain. I saw a group of cars heading in. They disappeared into the woods to presumably go make camp somewhere. Brave souls. I rode for a bit, then turned around to head back to camp. As I approached the tree line, I saw something move out of the corner of my eye. I looked to my right, toward the area of unexplored woods that I'd been in. There was an area of trees at the base of an incredibly steep peak and the trees went up as far as the eye could see. I spotted a figure within those trees, and it was just standing there looking at me. 
All I could really make out was that it was black or dark brown, standing on two feet. It turned and began striding up the summit with almost no effort at all. You could actually hear the crashing of trees and shrubbery as it made its way up the mountain. I rode back to camp in a hurry. As I rode back, I could hear another scream far in the distance, almost as if something were answering the first scream I heard. Since it was our last day on the mountain, the guys had packed in their gear and we were leaving. I was admittedly relieved that we were getting out of there. Scott pulled me aside once I got back to camp and asked me if that I heard those screams. I told him I had, and then I told him about those bears and what I saw going up the mountain. He was skeptical, but told me that we shouldn't tell my mom or my little brother since they'd most likely just wig out. We took the four-wheeler out to the meadow, and I showed Scott the area in which I saw the thing. There was no bad smell, which are sometimes reported with Bigfoot sightings. There were full-grown trees ripped right out of the ground. Branches, foliage, and leaf debris was everywhere. The smell of fresh pine and sap was pretty strong. We couldn't figure out what the heck could have done that, but it looked like a tornado went through there, ripping up the place. We left that day, and we never told anyone else about it. The other guys that went with us to the dredge had heard the screams and acknowledged that something wasn't right. They wanted to leave it at that, though. I haven't been back there since, but I wouldn't mind getting a group together and heading up that way again to explore a bit. My experience is so similar to the ones on this website, BigfootEncounters.com, that I visited that it's pretty remarkable. However, I'm still unsure of what I saw, and I can't really make a conclusive claim that I, in fact, did see a Bigfoot. I do believe that they most likely exist, but I'm still unsure. I'm not very experienced with the outdoors. The screams I heard could have been anything, really. I do think it's a pretty big coincidence that this matches up with other experiences, but that doesn't mean much. I could have seen a bear or something standing on its hind legs, but it didn't look like a bear. It looked like a hairy man, and it was huge. But I'm both a believer and a skeptic, so I can't really say for sure what it was. It all still pretty insane experience, though. One I'll never forget. My name is Zach, and I was the only witness... I'm glad this site exists, because up till now I felt pretty alone. I'm glad others have experienced the same kind of phenomena. It helps me deal with it for sure. Zach, December 15th, 2009. That's the end of story number four. Story number five. An old Bob Titmus story. Robert Earl Titmus. December 24, 1918, through November 15, 1997. Age, 79. By Larry Batson. In the last years of Bob Titmus's life, I occasionally talked to him on the phone when he was up to it. One day he told me about being up in the Bluff Creek area tracking Bigfoot, collecting hair samples, looking for footprints or whatever he could find, he related this incident, which occurred about a year or two before the Patterson-Gimlin footage had been filmed. 
Titmus was sure his memory was starting to fail him, but this event he remembered perfectly. He was deep in the back country of Bluff Creek by himself one afternoon, and at the time he was certain there was a Sasquatch or Sasquatches very close by the evidence that he was finding. He was so involved and so focused that he lost track of the time and the sun was starting to go down. The density of the forest overcame him. He suddenly realized that the day was getting too dark to find his way back to his main campsite. Titmus realized that he was going to have to stay put until morning because trying to find his way out in the darkness would be dangerous and foolish. The nights can be quite cold, and he really was not wearing enough clothing to just lie in the woods and try to sleep, so he began to dig a pit for him to sleep in. After he finished digging his bed, he laid in it and started covering himself with a thick layer of leaves, branches, and pine needles. After he finished, the only part of him that was exposed was a small area around his face. He was quite comfortable, sufficiently warm enough, and he had no problem going to sleep. Titmus guessed that the time was probably around 1 a.m., when he was startled awake by the sound of something moving through the forest nearby, and it seemed from the sounds to be heading in his direction. He could hear the sound of heavy footsteps crashing methodically through the forest brush, breaking limbs and so forth. At first he thought that it was a bear, but it wasn't long before he realized it was too noisy for a bear. It came closer and closer, and then it stopped. Titmus could hear the thing breathing. Not just breathing, but also <laughs> sniffing the air like it was trying to pick up a scent, and now he realized that it had indeed picked up his scent, but could not figure out where he was. With just his face exposed, Titmus was very well concealed from what he came to understand had to be a Sasquatch. All of a sudden, it started screaming, breaking branches, and throwing rocks in his direction. Titmus held very still, very quiet. The Sasquatch started moving around, pacing back and forth through the forest, continuing to scream, bellow, and throw debris. Titmus related that this behavior continued until about an hour before daybreak. Then, as the sun began to rise and light trickled through the forest canopy, the creature went away, and the forest fell silent again. He pulled himself out of his makeshift bed in the ground and started to look around, investigating the entire area. He walked in the direction of where the ruckus had come from, and he could not believe his eyes. It looked like a bulldozer had gone through the forest. Saplings had been pulled out of the ground, larger trees pushed over, broken, or snapped in two. There were branches covered with hair samples, and the ground was littered with footsteps. It was no bear. In later years, Titmus went back to Bluff Creek shortly after the Patterson footage had been filmed uh, in October of 1967 and he saw the footprints on the sandbar the film subject had left, and he was certain that this was the same Sasquatch that he encountered the night that he slept in the pit in the wilds of Bluff Creek. 
a key figure in Sasquatch Bigfoot investigation for nearly 40 years. Titmus died in Chilliwack, British Columbia, July 1, 1997, following a heart attack that he had suffered a few days before at his home in Harrison Hot Springs, British Columbia. He was 78. This is the end of the collection of five stories. Thank you for listening. Thanks for listening to this episode of Creek Devil. If you or anyone you know has had an encounter with these creatures, please contact us at williamjevning at yahoo.com. That's William, J-E-V-N-I-N-G at yahoo.com. All communication is confidential. Join us for another program next week. And until then, keep your eyes open out there. <laughs>